Show starts in five minutes. Show starts in four minutes. Show starts in three minutes. Show starts in two minutes. We're now just one minute away from the beginning of our next feature. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, showtime! And now, on with the show. A very special 100th episode of Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvik. That's right, I am your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this very special 100th episode, almost two years in the making. First, I gotta say, I can't believe how many out there, how many of you out there are listening around the world. Hold on a second. Everybody shut up. Shut up. I'm I'm trying to be uh, sentimental here. Everybody shut up. Okay, thanks. Anyhow. It blows my mind every time I open up that little map of the world that shows my listeners. And there's people from around the world. Countries where you shouldn't be able to understand me are listening to me. It's mind-boggling. I thank every one of you. My most heartfelt thanks for anybody who has ever listened to this show. And I wish I could personally thank every last one of you. Now let's just tell you a little bit about this jam-packed, extra-long, 100th episode. It'll touch upon just about everything and more. There'll be interviews, there will be stories, there will be listener stories, there will be callbacks to stories you guys asked me to find out more information about. There will be black-eyed children. The number one fan favorite thing that people want to hear more about, black-eyed children. There will be possessions and Bigfoots and UFOs and ghosts and paranormal stories and more. But first, as always, shout-outs. Please, don't skip past this. It takes a minute. Listen to the people, to the paramaniacs. Listen to their names of everyone who has ever donated to this show. And everyone should thank them because these people, without them, this show would not have made it to 100 episodes. That is the truth. So please, don't skip ahead. My most heartfelt thanks to everyone that ever backed the Patreon page over at patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. My heartfelt thanks go to Aaron, Aaron, Allie, Alicia, Amber, Amy, Angie, Anthony, Ariel, Austin, Autumn, Brody, Seth, Carolyn, Carolyn, Chuck, Dan, Daniel, David, Devin, Dill, Drake, Edgar, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Fabian, Harvey, Harley, Heidi, J-Mark, Jade, Jaime. I got it right on the 100th episode. 
Jared, Jason, Jason, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff T, Jenny, Jennifer, Jerry, Jim, Joe, John, Jonathan, Jory, Joshua, Joshua, Judy, Juliana, Kat, Keith, Kelsey, Kenny, Kira, Kyle, Kyle, Lash, Laura, Laura Rutho, Lauren, hey, Lawrence, Leo, Lily, Lindsay, Lindsay, Lionel, Logan, M. Caballero, Madison, Maggie, hey Maggie, Happy 100th, Michaela, Manning, Martin, Matt, Matt, Matthew, Megan, Megan, Melissa, Milo, Nanashi, Nick, Nick, Pablo, Peaches the Cat, I love you, Rachel, Rachel, Reed, Rich, Richard, Rodney, Rosa, Sage, Sarah, Sarah, Shani, 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 crap, I can't remember, Shelly, Simon, Lauren, Suzanne, Tash, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, the best, Travis, Trey, Troy, Veronica, and Vincente. Hopefully, that is everybody, I think I clicked it right, that is everybody who has ever supported me for any amount of time on Patreon. I can't thank you guys enough. This show would not have happened. This 100th episode would not have happened without you guys. But let's get over... Oh, I'm so excited for this. But let's get over to Paranormal News by Buzz Lee. Ghost entities that haunt the night Strange objects fly through the sky Shadow people are spending the night again Children knock on my door A portal to hell opens in my room Time travel man says the world is changing soon Every shout-out in the world to Buzz Lee for that amazing Paranormal News bumper music. Buzz Lee. Fantastic. Absolutely my favorite. I had a bunch to choose from. But this one just blew me away. So, Buzz, thank you so much for adding to the uh, production value of this 100th episode so amazingly. Thank you so much, Buzz Lee. Buzz, you are the best. If you ever want me to shout out or promote anything of yours, consider it done. Okay, first up in paranormal news, researchers discover hidden continent, Greater Adria, or Adria, because it's the Adrian Sea, I'm assuming it's Adria, in the Mediterranean. So the Seven Wonders of the World may be getting a new edition. Researchers have uncovered a continent the size of Greenland, mostly hiding underwater in the Mediterranean. Dubbed Greater Adria by its founders at, U- at the Utrecht University in the Netherlands, the missing pieces, the missing piece of continental crust seemingly separated from North Africa and lodged itself under Southern Europe. They do go on to say, this is not Atlantis. It is just another continent, but it does go to show ginormous things that we are discovering to this day, when people say, oh, there's nothing big left to discover, there's no possible way that a dinosaur could be still living in Loch Ness or 
Lake Champlain or anywhere else in the world. There's no way that Bigfoot are real. There's no way that Mokele Mbembe is real. This just goes to show you, we don't know shit. There's a good chance there's still other stuff out there. There might be a Megalodon out there for all we know. We haven't explored the oceans. And speaking of exploring the oceans, this next story says, scientists discover mysterious creature below Antarctica. Antarctica scientists find bizarre creature 3,500 meters under ice, like nothing seen before. So they found this 3,500 meters below the ice, leading to uh, leading one to state that they've never seen anything like this before. And it's also been seen in a documentary, and the documentary is called The Secrets of Antarctica. If you want to see what this thing looks like, I'll throw a photo up, up on uh, Facebook and Instagram. But Expedition Antarctica took to the waters for a 50-day journey across the Southern Ocean and beyond the icy continent earlier this year. On board New Zealand's research vessel, RV Tangaroa, an international team used state-of-the-art technology to scan the seabed. The uh, AEGIS imaging system allowed scientists to, to capture fascinating images like nothing seen before. And I gotta say, this thing is freaky looking. It's like a clear gelatinous thing with like a sucker mouth on it. Wait, I kind of want to hear what this guy's saying. Nah, it's boring. Uh, anyhow, um, while the mission is still ongoing, the Secrets of Antarctic documentary was released in on YouTube in July, revealing the amazing finds to date. The narrator explained, having braced ice storms, broken equipment, and rough seas for almost two months, the team braces itself for the most high-pressured assignment of them all. They will delve 3,500 meters into the abyssal, abyssal plain, a depth almost as high as the Swiss Alps. It will endure 300 times more pressure than we experience every day. So anyhow, it is a incredibly creepy creature found under Antarctica. It's the thing, basically. If you've ever seen the movie The Thing, this is how we all die. They've pulled it up from the ground. It's a gelatinous looking, sluggy, squiddy looking thing, and it's going to kill us all, probably. Okay, up next, Kool-Aid releases a flavor inspired by the storm on Area 51. But what does it taste like? The flavor is called Kool-Aid UFO Yeah. Storm Area 51 may have been a hoax, but capitalizing on it is not. Because Kool-Aid has a UFO Yeah intergalactic green flavor, which is the perfect cross between nostalgia and pop culture. Um, it's definitely alien themed. It is after all green for one with an alien print on its label. It's also being unveiled on the weekend of Storm Area 51 and there is no explicit tie-in to the events in Kool-Aid's promotions of the new flavor. So, what does it actually taste like? They said, um, it doesn't taste like green apple, doesn't taste like lime, maybe it's ecto-cooler, which I would absolutely love, but here's the catch. UFO Yeah is limited edition, very limited edition. There are 900 canisters, and the race to get your hands on one started yesterday, and by yesterday, I mean last week, unfortunately, September 20th. So, I'm sure these 900 canisters are gone, but Kool-Aid, if you're listening, I will give you free promotions for a long time if you send me a UFO Yeah limited edition canister, tub, whatever you want to call it, of your Kool-Aid. I would love to have this stuff. Continuing with that one, next up on Paranormal Almanac, from Arby's to Kool-Aid, marketers find Area 51 weekend out of this world. The first one is obviously the Kool-Aid. The second one, though, is Arby's Roadside Meat House. And that's right, they actually went to Area 51. 
They also had a variety of things on there. The E.T. Slider, Arby's Frying Objects, Galaxy Shake, the Redacted on Rye Sandwich. So they had a lot of fun with this promotion, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I think it's cool. I, I really did think about going down there, but when I saw it was going to be probably like 500 people, I was like, eh, I'm not traveling nine hours and, you know, letting Stitch stay home overnight by himself. It wasn't worth it for me. If it was going to actually be a storm on Area 51, I wanted to go down there and experience it. And then after I saw the videos of what did happen there, yeah, I was fine that I missed it. Um, it just looked like a bunch of drunk idiots dancing around. And I can find that just about anywhere in L.A. Up next, Indonesia fire turns sky a horrifying blood red. Now, obviously, this isn't paranormal, but the photos look really paranormal. It is insane how blood red the sky looks in Indonesia. Um, so I'm going to throw up a couple of these photos on there. It's a real quick story, but I wanted to show you these photos because these things are real and it looks insanely terrifying and paranormal. Up next, the moon could have caught alien organisms, says a uh, scientist, says Harvard professor. It would, be it would be tantalizing to find microfossils of extraterrestrial forms of life on the moon. Even more exciting would be to find traces of technological equipment that crashed on the lunar surface a billion years ago, amounting to a letter from an alien civilization saying we exist. Now, there's a lot of people, a lot of conspiracy theorists out there that say that is exactly what happened on the dark side of the moon, which is why we stopped going to the moon. We saw alien tech and or aliens on the moon. Whether they were still alive is, you know, very debatable amongst the conspiracy theorists, but... This Harvard professor says the moon was basically a giant net, a catch-all net of shit flying at us through space. And there's a good chance that it caught either alien organisms or alien technology. It's kind of cool. I like that one. Up next, another Loch Ness sighting. The 25-foot creature spotted in Loch as sighting figures skyrocket. Now, this one just happened on Wednesday three days ago. So if you're keeping score, that is a hell of a lot of Loch Ness sightings for something that supposedly doesn't exist. It's hard to believe I am the 16th sighting and my fourth for this year, says the man who spotted him. I suppose when you sit down and think about it, it's hard to grasp the achievement while other people have never got their first sighting. Something black pops up at intervals of four to five seconds on video covering a distance of about 20 to 25 feet at each interval. It's hard to calculate the size of the object, but I would say it pops up at least three feet high out of water. So, thankfully, sounds like Nessie's doing all right and really wants to make 2019 her year. Okay, up next in paranormal news, Google Maps add cute little UFO icon to Area 51 searches. And sure enough, if you go to Google Maps and you type in Area 51 or Groom Lake or anything like Groom Lake, Nevada, boom, a little tiny animated ufo looky thing will pop up right on there so it's cute it's dumb but i like it google maps verified the easter egg with a tweet on monday that said we click in peace now twitter user jenny reed first tweeted about the easter egg on friday the day an unknown number of alien raiders were supposed to storm area 51 so there's a little shout out for jenny reed little shout out for google maps feel free to go do it yourself it's actually kind of cool and finally, on paranormal news, one of America's most haunted hotel rooms will be available to rent in October. 
That hotel room is the Reed House's Room 311 in Chattanooga, Tennessee, known as Annalisa Netherly's Room. The woman is said to have haunted the facilities after. As the debated legend goes, she was nearly decapitated in a bathtub by a former lover, though some suggest she committed suicide in her own jealous rage. Well, if she was almost decapitated, there's a damn good chance she didn't do it herself. Um, anyhow, the room has been booked, uh, has been opened for bookings for every Thursday in October, the 3rd, the 10th, the 17th, the 24th, and Halloween night for a one-night stay only. The limited dates mark the only times that the restored room 311 will be available to book this year. So if you want to stay in this haunted room, if you're anywhere near Chattanooga, Tennessee, you're going to have to really fight hard to get these bookings because like they said, there's one, two, three, four, there's five chances. That's all you get. The room, which was home to a legendary 1920s murder and housed Al Capone on his way to federal tax evasion trial, is available daily for fearless visitors to tour, but has not been able to be rented since the renovations restored it to its creepy former glory. After reading all accounts of Haunted Room 311, we knew the best thing to do was to restore the room to make Annalisa Netherly comfortable with no modern amenities. And we are excited to welcome new guests to share her room, said General Manager Ken Merkel in a statement to Forbes. Room 311 looks and feels like Annalise's room in the 1920s. There's an AM radio that does not work, a vintage clawfoot tub, an original pull chain toilet, antique furnishings, and distressed hardwood floors, just like it would have been in the early 20th century, and no television. All right, so what do people see in this room? Well, paranormal accounts reportedly include flickering lights, unexplained noises, ghostly apparitions, and running water in the bathroom, according to the hotel's website. The hotel also reinstalled the bars over the windows that were put in place when Al Capone stayed in the room. For those willing to brave the hunt, the limited time, the Red House Haunted Room 311 Experience Package starts at $666 and will include an overnight accommodation, complimentary valet parking, a decanter of bathtub gin, two Annalisa cocktails at the hotel's bar and billiards room, and room service for breakfast. $666? It's cool, but I also think it's going to get uh, booked up almost instantly. So I guess, you know, good luck to all you guys. And finally, though, wait, there is one more. I'm, I apologize. And finally, an update to a classic episode. Sunnyvale's haunted Toys R Us closed, but has new life again. When Sunnyvale's Toys R Us closed in 2018, it, just didn't, it didn't just take baby strollers, action figures, and coloring books with it. It ended a chapter of one of the Bay Area's well-known and most enduring ghost stories. The store was built in 1970 as part of Toys R Us expansion to California. Almost immediately, employees reported strange happenings. Toys would fly off the shelves, people felt phantom touches, and faucets turned on and off by themselves. It became legendary among paranormal investigators in the late 70s when it played host to several seances by psychic Sylvia Brown. One of those seances was shown on the popular program, That's Incredible!, launching the store to international fame. Now, like I said, I did an episode about this one, and a listener actually sent this story to me as well. Thank you so much for sending it to me. But, even though it's not open as a Toys R Us, it's back as a spirit store. So yeah, it's back as a spirit Halloween store. It's open from 9 a.m., or from 10 a.m. From 10 a.m. to 9 a.m. What? From 10 a.m. to 9 a.m., the former toy store sells wares of a more whims... Ah, I, think that's a, I think that's a misprint. From 10 a.m. to 9 p.m., you can go and walk around this store. And trust me, if you're in the area, if you're near 
Sunnyvale, if you're near San Francisco, go to this Toys R Us. Here's your chance to walk around in a pretty empty store and do a paranormal investigation in a known haunted location. A location that again and again and again has proven to be haunted. So please, listeners, go and do this. If I can get a free moment, I want to drive up there and do this myself. And I just might do that coming up very soon. And if I do, that will be an exclusive episode for the patrons, probably. Sorry, everybody else. But anyhow, here's your chance. Go up to a real haunted location that has a ton of paranormal activity. That about does it for Paranormal News. Let's take a uh, quick break and let's come back and talk for longer than I have ever talked on any episode ever. We are back. Settle in. Because this one's a long one. That's what she said. (laughs) And like I said at the beginning, this is a grab bag of all things paranormal. I think I have just a little bit of everything I love and more. So settle in. And I realize you can pause it at any time. But fear not, there is an intermission later, so you can always wait for that. Are you guys ready for this one? Sit back. Turn off the lights. Sit back a little further. But don't fall over. But sit back a little further. Now turn back on the lights. Okay, now turn off the lights. I just wanted to see if I can get you to turn the lights on and off again. Are the lights off or on? I already forgot. For some of you, they're on. For some of you, they're off. For others, you're driving and wondering why I'm making you turn lights on and off as you drive. Scaring fellow... I almost said pedestrians. Drivers! Scaring fellow drivers. That's right. Alrighty. Let's talk about the number one requested topic. People want to hear more about black-eyed children. You fans can't get enough of them. And I have one definite, a few possible, one I'm not sure falls exactly under this category, and one that you have to decide for yourself. Oh, all these you have to decide for yourself. I can't make you guys decide what you think of this one. But let's dive into the black eyes of the creepiest kids on the planet. Now, this first one comes from a listener, and I'm very excited to uh, read this one to you. I don't know whether this is black-eyed children or sleep paralysis, so I will let you and your listeners decide. Remember when I said you're going to have to decide? Well, get ready to decide. When I was 16, I started getting sleep paralysis, not every night, but most nights. When I would wake up, something would feel off. And I like how they said, when I would wake up. Like, sometimes they just never woke up. When I would wake up, something would feel off. I could see my room. I could hear things around me, like my fan but I could also hear and feel something else. Something was watching me. After a few times of this happening, I finally saw it. It was a small child sitting on the end of my bed. I could feel its weight on the mattress. It was looking away from me, but then slowly it turned around, turned towards me, and just stared at me. And as you guessed it, it had black eyes. So yeah, that does check off all the criterias. Creepy kid, uh, bangs. Uh, did they say bangs? I think they said bangs. No, they didn't say bangs. Well, I'm adding the bangs. Creepy kid, black eyes. That's all you need for a black-eyed kid. So, uh, as you guess, it had black eyes. 
just the slightest bit of whites on the edge. I was frozen looking at the black-eyed child, and it looked back at me. Then all of a sudden, it stood up and just walked through the wall that separated my room from my sister's. A year or so later, I asked her about it, and she said she saw a child with no eyes that would stand in front of her closet and just stare at her. That is a great one. Um, it is both sleep paralysis and black-eyed children, as far as I'm concerned, or black-eyed child, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but I love it. Thank you so much for sending that one in. This next one is short, but it's interesting. And I'll tell you what I think about it in a second. Let me read it to you first. I don't know if this was a black-eyed children thing or demonic thing, but my ex-boyfriend in the 70s had blue eyes, but whenever he was abusive towards me, his eyes would be completely black, corner to corner. He was really religious, but also really abusive. What do you think? Well, A, I think that ex-boyfriend in the 70s was a dick. Uh, B, I personally, I think this was a demon and not a black-eyed children thing, but again, for all I know, that's all black-eyed children are. They're just possessed kids. So it very well could be an adult black-eyed children or a black-eyed demon that's making black-eyed kids. I don't know. Like The answer is I don't know. I think we can all agree the ex-boyfriend was a dick and you're better off without him. Okay, the next couple come directly from Reddit. So again, grain of salt time. I live in Brookhaven in Atlanta and in a good neighborhood. Okay, brag much. I subscribed to this subreddit after I listened to a st blah 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 about black-eyed children and I really do think entities like this may be real. Although I live in an amazing neighborhood, oh, okay, for a second it was good, now it's an amazing neighborhood, there are sets of four duplexes on the right, right on the same road next to each other with large new homes surrounding us. And I live in one of those duplexes, so not in one of those new homes, I guess it can't be that good of a neighborhood, and all my duplex neighbors are fellow millennials that are trying to make it. Except the one to the right of us. We don't know who lives there, rarely seeing anyone come or go, and even my neighbors in the rest of the duplexes have no clue who it is that lives there. We have, we have both back doors to our duplexes and front doors as well. I'm in the backyard letting my dog out at about midnight and I see something very strange. A child go to the door in an old-fashioned dress. This was a little girl at midnight in what I would describe as an Easter Sunday type dress pleated with a big bow on back. It was dark, so I just saw her outline with the silhouette of the dress and bow with her long hair. She looked the height of a six-year-old, but with no adult accompaniment. When I saw her, I immediately was scared. I think because I was immediately... I think because immediately my brain went down the path of, we've seen no kids here ever. It's midnight. She's wearing funny clothes. My neighbors and we think this guy is a shut-in. Oh my God, is this a black-eyed kid? But also, even talking about it with my husband, all my hair just raises on its end. I scooted out of there fast to avoid it, but I wonder if that black-eyed kid was trying to get into that person's back door. So, yeah, that's a creepy one. Definitely a creepy one. Is it real? I don't know. It's got a lot of that uh, maybe too many details to be true kind of a thing, but still, great story. The next one says, So me and my friend are walking around my neighborhood at night because we were really bored and passed this park that's right in my neighborhood, and we heard singing. So we looked over at the park and saw a little girl, alone, sitting on a swing. She had long brown hair, a pink polka dot dress, 
and a red bow in her hair. We couldn't see her super well at first because the park wasn't super well lit, so we kept walking past the park because we felt this overwhelming fear when we saw her without any cause. But as we were walking, still looking at her, she turned her head and stopped singing. She was singing Ring Around the Rosie. This is where I call bullshit on this story. It's just too, you know, too perfect. Me and my friend, even more scared, were walking a bit faster at that point. But I felt drawn to her. Even though I had this overwhelming fear, I also felt like I should go to her. But I fought that and kept walking. She then stood up from the swing and started walking. When she walked out towards the street, which we were on, which we were on the other side of, she went under the streetlight, and then I saw it. I made clear eye contact with her, and her eyes were pitch black. She then started to run towards us, which only my friend noticed because I was caught up in looking at her eyes. So my friend grabs my arms and yells, book it. So we start running as fast as we can down the street, and once we got to my porch, my mom came outside. We turned around, and she was gone. After that, I had sleep paralysis of, of her. I had sleep paralysis of her just standing in my room, staring at me with her dark, dark eyes. I had a dream about her and always felt some sort of presence around me, but I never actually saw her out there again. But anytime I'm outside at night, I always feel an extremely strong fear of seeing her again. I don't know about that one. What do you guys think? I want to think that one's true. I really do. But ringing around the rosy? No, that's too much of a bullshit detail. And finally, the not sure it's a black eyed children thing. Well, you'll see why in a second. This is not from uh, Reddit, by the way. When I was young, like 10 or 11, I was coming home from hanging out at a friend's house. She only lived five minutes away, and it was the 80s, so I could walk myself home. I get to my house and see that there's someone standing on the porch, a kid about my height. I thought, of it, I thought it might have been one of my other friends, so I walked up and instantly knew it wasn't. There was this odd-looking boy saying, Mrs., please let me in your house. It's cold outside. He was saying this to the closed door, then, as if he felt me standing there, he turned slowly and looked at me. He had old-style clothes, bangs, and red eyes. Like, blood-red eyes. Not bloodshot, but all the eye was blood-red. I turned towards my friend's house I just left, and I ran. My friend let me in, and we slammed the door closed and told her mom, who looked out the window and said, yes, there was a boy walking towards the house. As soon as he got on her porch, the mom yelled for him to go home and that she called the cops. She hadn't. The boy asked her to let him in, just like he did at my house, and her mom said, no, go away. After a few minutes, she looked outside, and there wasn't anyone in either direction. Okay, so this is a total, like, it's a red-eyed child acting just like every black-eyed kid story I have ever heard. Fucking creepy kids, man, I swear. Alright, speaking of creepy people, let's talk about a few more possession cases. Now, the first one is from China, when two Taoist monks and two other men were called in to perform an exorcism. One monk recorded what everyone saw. With unutterable horror, we saw that the man's body began to swell visibly. 
On and on, the dreadful process continued until he became a grotesque balloon of a man. Then, as the exorcist concentrated and commanded the demons to leave the victims, streams of malodorous excreta and effluvia flowed onto the ground in incredible profusion. All right. Kurt here. Come on, monk. Can't you just say gross shit came out of his mouth? I got to talk for like two hours here. I don't need these kinds of tongue twisters and encyclopedia. Would it not be an encyclopedia? Um, Thesaurus-ish descriptions. Yes, I said thesaurus I don't know. All right, so uh, where, were we, where were we? Bum, bum, bum. It's a bunch of shit coming out of her mouth. Okay, the four attendants rushing to hold him screamed, no, no, you cannot drive us out. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The four attendants rushed to hold him. No, no, you can't drive us out. We are two against one. Our power is greater to greater than yours, the possessed man said, in a voice that was not his own even remotely. Then the possessed man threw all four men holding him down. He just threw him off and he laughed maniacally. Then he tied them, oh, I'm sorry, then they tied him down with ropes, and as his body swelled again, the ropes started to stretch, or whatever you want to call it, from the uh, from the swelling. Almost like um, Big Trouble in Little China. That's the movie I was just trying to think of. You know when that guy starts to swell up in Big Trouble? That's what I picture every time. Anyhow, finally, after threatening to kill the possessed man with a sword, this is one of the monks, mind you, they threatened to kill the possessed man with a sword, the demon seemed to leave him as his body returned to normal size, and the man passed out. When he regained consciousness, he remembered none of that. All right, up next is a old one, and I mean a really old one. We go back to 1586 to Hackney, England, where a teenager named Sarah Williams was possessed. A Catholic priest performed the exorcism, but from the sounds of it, it was more like pure torture, like serious torture porn torture. He tied her to a chair, gave her a hallowed drink that made her vomit, and forced her to inhale burning brimstone until her face was, quote, as black as a chimney sweeps. For more than 10 hours, Sarah Williams and the demon were tortured, and here's what an eyewitness wrote about the exorcism. A wonderful sight, I assure you, to behold the pain and torment that the devil was put unto at the burning of the brimstone and holding the same before him at his nose, how he roared, tormented, and screeched in most terrible manner, swelling in the face of the party, swearing and cursing so grievously that a man would have been afraid to have heard it. So, that's what they were doing. Then the priest, perceiving that the devil was gotten into the bottom of her belly, gave a relic unto one of the women, willing her to apply it unto the belly of the party, the which being done by the woman. It was wonderful to see how the devil was tormented. All right, if that isn't bad enough, Sarah was also beaten with a maniple, which is a strip of material worn by the priest at mass, forced to wear an alb, which is another Eucharistic vestment, okay, and had relics pressed against her flesh. Towards the end of her ordeal, she cried out that the demon would break her. She said, he lieth in the bottom of my belly. The demon gave his name as Saint Maho, M-A-H-O, and the priest knew it was weakening by giving his name. 
which I got to say is weird because, or interesting, I guess, not really weird, which is interesting because using a demon's name supposedly gives them strength. So I don't know if the demon said its name and then nobody used it or if the priest was using it that whole time and it seemed to make him weak. So the uh, story keeps going with great uh, flourishments from the 1500s, but, uh, well, basically it got a little pervy. It got a little pervy when the priest ordered the maid to start rubbing that relic on Sarah's gaped body until Sarah seems to expel the demon and return to normal. Well, I'm not going to read the whole transcript because it reads like 1500s Fifty Shades of Grey for a little bit, and basically I'm going to save that kind of stuff for episode 200. That is not episode 100 material. So, thankfully, Sarah Williams came back to normal and the priest stopped doing really torturous and pervy shit to her. Alrighty, up next is another old one, but not quite as old as Sarah Williams. Now, this one takes place in 1842 in Germany when local villagers noticed 28-year-old Gottlieben 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 don't know. I'm going to say Gottlieben because I like saying it. Gottlieben Didis acting weird. Which is odd because up until that point, Gottlieben Didis never acted weird. I'm guessing. So Gottlieben claimed her house was haunted and soon began slipping in and out of what others described as a trance-like state. Which is different than the trance-light state. Um, trance-light, it's a uh, little fewer calories. It's uh, It's not as heavy, you know. But it was only when a religious pastor commenced an exorcism that things went really bad. Which, if you listen to my exorcism episode, um, this seems to happen quite a bit. Priests are like, oh, well, we can get that demon out of there. I'm going to perform an exorcism. Oh, shit, I made it worse. So that seemed to happen quite a bit. Um, anyhow, Gottlieben became violent. So violent that they, they had to restrain her. And they restrained her for two years. Yes, that's right restrained her for two years. The pastor performed various exorcism rites. Obviously, they took breaks. Uh, but good old Gottlieben, Gottlieben started to vomit glass, nails, and blood. Then, just like that, she was cured and proclaimed, Jesus is victor. All right. Take it down a notch. If it took this guy two years and you're vomiting, vomiting up a bunch of shit, they didn't exactly win. Jesus was not exactly a victor. I think the demon just got really fucking bored inside of Gottlieben for two years that he was like, you know what? I'm good. I can get somebody else. I can I can do someone else. I'm going to go someplace else. Screw, screw all you guys. Yep. Jesus, Victor, whatever. You have fun with that. Alrighty. Just like that, let's move on from exorcisms. To UFOs. But before we do that, let's mix it up a little bit. Nah, I don't like that one. Here we go. This is good UFO background music. The year, November 17th, 1986. Japan Airlines Flight 1628 is gotta be the wildest UFO encounter I've heard in a long time. And there is a lot of proof that this happened. A lot of proof. Japanese Boeing 747-200F cargo aircraft was en route from Paris, France to Narita International Airport near Tokyo, Japan. It was over Anchorage, Alaska. How the hell did it go? 
If it's going from France to Japan, why is it going over Alaska? I don't know. Um, the world's not flat. All right, so it was over Anchorage, Alaska, when the crew noted two strange objects coming up to the left side of the aircraft. They rose from below and proceeded to maintain a similar speed and appeared to be escorting the jet. Now, all three experienced pilots, and I mean experienced pilots, I'll tell you more about that in a second, they were all in the cockpit, they all saw and monitored these two UFOs. Captain Kenju Torashi, an ex-fighter pilot with more than 10,000 hours of flight experience, he was in the cockpit's left-hand seat. Co-pilot Takanori Tamafuji, Takanori Tamafuji was in the right-hand seat, and flight engineer Yoshio Yoshio Sukuba was also in the cockpit at the time. The pilots reported that as the UFOs got closer, they noted that each of the, uh, I'll say crafts at this time, each of the crafts had two rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters. Though their mainframes remained obscured by the dark outside, not knowing what what they were, they said uh, that these must be military aircraft. They had no idea. They couldn't really see them. It was too dark. They could kind of see the glowing nozzle from or the thrusters, so they knew it was some kind of aircraft. And they went, all right, we're over Alaska. There's a lot of military craft over Alaska. It's just got to be that. But these things flew in ways that none of the experienced pilots had ever seen. They said, the thing was flying as if there was no such thing as gravity. It sped up, then stopped, then flew at our speed in our direction, so that to us it appeared to be standing still. The next instant, it changed course. In other words, the flying object had overcome gravity. Then, suddenly, the two objects came closer and illuminated the entire cabin and produced an intense heat. And unfortunately, that's all how they describe it. They just say it was an intense heat. Now, it was obviously enough to scare the passengers and the crew. So they were like, that's it. The pilots immediately contacted air traffic control who could not confirm any traffic around the jet. They could easily see the jet, but they said, that's all we're seeing. After three to five minutes, the objects assumed a side-to-side configuration, which they maintained for another 10 minutes. 10 full minutes this happened. The pilots noted that each object had a square shape consisting of two rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters, like they were talking about earlier, separated by a dark central section. Captain Tarashi speculated in his drawings that the objects would appear cylindrical if viewed from another angle and that observed movement of the nozzles, of the nozzles themselves. So he's like basically saying the uh, cylinder's rotation were was because of these nozzles. So these two UFOs, they take off at a rapid speed. And that's when the crew noticed a much larger craft was directly behind the plane, tailing it. It was described as a huge saucer-shaped disc. Captain Tarashi also noticed a pale band of light that mirrored their altitude, speed, and direction. So they set their onboard radar scope to a 25 nautical mile range, and that's when he confirmed an object right behind them in the expected 10 o'clock direction 
at about uh, seven and a half miles away. So we informed air traffic control of all of this. And again, air traffic control couldn't see anything on their radar. But this time, Elmdorf's NORAD Regional Operations Control Center, who had been monitoring the traffic, the, the chatter, well, they reported a surge primary return. What that basically means is NORAD could see whatever it was that was tailing the jet. Now, as the jet got closer to Fairbanks and the city lights, they could start to make out more and more of the UFO. Captain Tarashi said the outline of a gigantic spaceship on his port side is what he quoted as saying, twice the size of an aircraft carrier. Yeah, you heard that right. An experienced pilot, ex-fighter pilot with more than 10,000 hours flight experience, saw something twice the size of an aircraft carrier. And he wasn't the only one. Everybody in the cockpit and a bunch of the passengers reported this as well. Now, the object followed in formation. Oh, uh, basically was, you know, keeping in the same relative position throughout the 45 degree turn and descent from 35,000 feet to 31,000 feet and also a 360 degree turn. The pilots were so scared and trying to figure out what to do that they wanted to see if this thing was going to stay with them or if what they were seeing was real at all. So again, 45 degree turn, a descent from 35,000 to 31,000 feet and a 360 degree turn. And this thing was right there. It got so bizarre that the Anchorage air traffic control offered military intervention, but the pilots declined for a couple of reasons. The first one that they said was for fear of their passengers' lives, which, again, is a valid fear if the pilots freak out and or the, the military pilots freak out and launch a missile and it hits the plane. They just killed a bunch of innocent people. But they also declined because they were afraid of what people would think of them. You got to remember, this is 1986. This could have ended their pilot's career. But anyhow, so they decline the military intervention. And the FAA division chief was so alarmed by what he saw on radar. Later, when they actually talked about this, and this man actually spoke, he's like, you know what? Nothing happened. Nothing was here. Forget it. You didn't see anything. Like, he just kind of just shut down completely because he knew if he talked about it, there would be no way for them to say it was anything other than a UFO. All right, so Captain Tarashi cited in the official Federal Aviation Administration report that the object was a UFO. He also joked that he thought the UFOs might have followed his chartered cargo plane because, quote, we are carrying Beaujolais, a very famous wine made in France. Maybe they wanted to drink it. A couple of years later, a meeting was attended by representatives of the FBI, CIA, and President Reagan's scientific study team. It was all about this incident using audio wow. tapes... Hey, man, it's cool. Using audio tapes and radar locks. Upon completion of the presentation, all present were told that the incident was secret and that their meeting, quote, never took place. Now, apparently there is still video tape of the radar locks and all the transmissions of the pilots talking. And many people say that due to the expertise of the pilots and the amount of people that saw something that night, this is one of the best UFO airline incidents ever. 
Let's stay right there in Alaska. Not even a year later. That was November 17th, 1986. This is January 30th, 1987. So just a few months later, U.S. Air Force KC-135 was flying from Elmdorf Air Force Base in Anchorage, Alaska to Eelson or Eielson Air Force Base near Fairbanks. Short flight. Should be easy. Well, the crew of that KC-135 reported a large, silent, disc-shaped UFO at about 20,000 feet altitude. Again, like the last one, Anchorage Air Traffic Control Radar showed nothing on there. It could see the KC-135 and nothing else. Now, in a moment, radar traffic um, control asked the pilots of the plane if they still had the unknown object in sight. The pilot said yes, sounded a little bit nervous, and added that the UFO was only 40 feet from the plane now. One thing that a lot of people said about this instance was, and some of the, some were the same people on the ground, they said, this seemed like the exact same thing that happened as Flight 1628. So about 30 minutes later, Anchorage Control Tower relayed a message from the FAA informing the pilots to contact them upon landing because the FAA wanted a full report on the UFO and wanted to shut it down. Then, the very next day, January 31st, another sighting of the exact same UFO happened again. Alaska Airlines Flight 53 reported enormous disc-like objects flying near their craft. Now, this one, they said, it seemed like these UFOs were tracking Flight 53. The control tower operator relayed to the pilot that, again, they showed nothing on their radar. The pilot of Flight 53 started to get very concerned. He said this UFO was moving at 3,600 miles per hour, and he also stated that the UFO had almost immediately disappeared after flying under Flight 53. So it's really weird. There was something definitely happening in Alaska at that time, and everyone seemed to know about it. Pilots, ground control, everybody. Yet there wasn't anything they can do to stop it. And as much as they tried, they definitely clamped down the story to a certain extent, but obviously they couldn't clamp it down completely. So I guess there was just nothing they could be done. I mean, at that point, what do you do? And speaking of nothing to do, let's talk about another incident when there was nothing to do to stop the UFO. Her name was Amy Rylance from Gundia, Australia. Sorry, Australians. I'm sure I got that wrong. Gundia, Australia? Don't know. Sorry. Uh, Amy, her husband Keith, and her friend Petra were asleep in their home when Petra was woken up by a bright, strange light. She said it was 11.15. She walked into the living room to see Amy asleep being carried by a beam of light out the window and up to a huge UFO outside. Petra ran and got Keith, but by the time they got to the living room, Amy was gone, and so was the UFO. So, depending on where you get your information from for this story, it's kind of odd, because some people say she ran back in the bedroom. Other people say she ran into another room to get Keith. Um, you know, Amy and Keith, who again, were married, seem to be sleeping in two different rooms. I guess that's not the most strangest thing in the world. I know a lot of people that do that. But I don't know why I found that one so odd. There's a lot of things I find odd about this story, but the details about where everybody was when this happened, 
is definitely all over the place, to, again, depending on where you get your information. So anyhow, uh, they noticed that the curtains on the window she was beamed out of were torn and that the bushes outside the window were burnt. Uh, they called the police who did the basic how long has she been missing crap and did nothing. However, around 90 minutes later, Keith received a phone call from a woman in Mackay, Mackay, Queensland, which is apparently an eight-hour drive from Gandaya. Did I get any of those right? Doubt it. So she said she was with uh, Amy, who was in the hospital, dazed and dehydrated. Somehow, she managed to travel eight hours in 90 minutes. Now, Amy was uninjured except for red marks on her upper thighs and heels. She said she remembered lying on a bed, claimed that she then remembered waking up lying on a bench in a strange rectangular room, and illumination came from the walls and the ceilings. She said she was completely alone. She then called out and heard what seemed to be a male voice asking her to be calm and that everything would be all right and she would not be harmed. She said the voice seemed to come from within her own head. Soon an opening appeared in the wall and a, quote, guy about six feet tall walked in the room with tall figures leaning over her, reassuring her and taking samples from her. When she was found, her body hair had grown considerably suggesting that she had been gone for much longer than a few short hours she was missing. They said that her, um, her roots had grown out in her dyed hair, and that body hair everywhere else on her body had grown out as well. Now, a lot of speculation has rightfully been done about this case, but I can't find anything that concretely debunks this story. And the only three people in this story have not changed their stories since then. Could it be a fake? A hundred percent yes. Why wasn't it more investigated if she woke up eight hours away in 90 minutes? Well, that's a, a huge red flag for me. I'll put it that way. So take that story with a grain of salt. Australians, I'm sure you've heard about this one a lot. Does anybody know Amy Rylance? I tried to find her. Yeah, no, nothing I can find on Amy Rylance that seems to be real. So Australians, I'm leaving this one up to you guys. If you guys know, oh, that's a 100% bullshit story, please let me know. If you go, well, there's something to that story. Some people say it's real. Some people say it's fake. Like I said, it has a lot of web presence, but not a lot of proof either way, whether it's fake or whether it was real. Okay, next up is another abduction, but this one is a bit different. This is Brazilian farmer Antonio Via Boas, B-O-A-S. Now, he said that he simply noticed a red star one night in 1957, but as he watched the star, he noticed it was getting closer and closer, and it landed right in his field. Now, he says he'd never thought about UFOs before this instance. He freaked out and tried to run, but was taken by aliens aboard their UFO for an intergalactic booty call. Now, he didn't call it that, but I thought I would lighten the mood here. On board, Antonio was, quote, Forced to have intercourse... Oh, wait. I need better music than this one. Sorry. Hold on. We're going to go with better music. One second. There we go. Antonio was forced to have intercourse with a female creature with bright red pubic hair so as to produce a human-alien hybrid to be raised by the aliens. He then found himself back on Earth four hours later... That's a serious alien humble brag by Antonio. 
Uh, well, he says he didn't feel good when he returned and saw a doctor. Was it for space herpes? Maybe, because Antonio had burns on his body, nausea, lesions, headaches, and a doctor diagnosed him as suffering from radiation sickness. All right, so let's take a moment to talk about safe alien abduction sex. If you or a loved one gets abducted and a bright red pube lady creature wants to bone you, ask if she has STDs or space STDs. And as embarrassing as that question may be, it might just save your life. That's right. Ask when the last time she probed or was probed by an alien, a human, or any form of hybrid. Don't feel pressure to have four-hour-long alien sex like Antonio, and just do what makes you feel good. Remember, kids, it's your body and no means no, unless you're abducted by aliens, in which case, just go with it. Alrighty, up next, total BS. But, you know, let's hear it anyway. The year was 1896, and the Stockton Evening Mail reported that aliens attempted to abduct Colonel H.G. Shaw when he was traveling with a companion by horse and carriage towards Lodi in California. The story goes that suddenly their horses were startled and they saw, quote, three strange beings at the side of the road. The creatures were slender and humanoid in appearance, but seven feet tall and bald except for a velvet soft down that covered their bodies. They didn't speak but warbled to one another as if they were chanting. They held lamps that shone unnaturally brightly and seemed to be formed from some sort of glowing mineral. Shaw said the creatures possessed, quote, a strange and indescribable beauty. Yep, he wanted to bone him. But unfortunately for Shaw, the aliens then attempted to lift him, and he thought that they wanted to carry him away. But sadly, he was too heavy for them. So, yeah, aliens fat shame Shaw, and they just bail on the abduction completely. They just, quote, moved away, floating just above the ground. Now, Shaw, obviously can't handle rejection, still wanting some alien strange, followed them, until they reached a huge, cigar-shaped spaceship in the air. The creatures flew up to it, disappearing inside a door, and left without even an apology. Okay, up next, let's talk about Hillary Porter from Wales. She's a Ministry of Defense employee who claims to have been, claims to have been abducted by aliens countless times through her life. Now, starting at five years old, she said she remembered playing in the long grass behind her home when, it, when a reptilian alien appeared. She said it had scaly skin and black holes for a nose and a mouth. It was five feet tall and exceptionally strong. Hillary said it grabbed her and carried her on to its disc-shaped ship. She was stripped and placed on a bed, then prodded with various instruments. At that point, she says she blacked out. It happened again to her, like years later, when she was out driving with her husband. She says the car suddenly pulled up at a garage and they both had no memory of how they even got there. When she undressed later that day, she had triangular red suction marks on her stomach. After all of her abductions, sadly, Hillary suffers piercing migraines and says she sometimes is woken with bruises, scratches, and even blood stains on her clothes. And she says the aliens have been sent to Earth to get our genetic material. Now, if you guys are interested, Hillary Porter has a lot of drawings of her alien encounters that I'm sure you can find by Googling Hillary Porter alien abductions. Maybe I'll add a couple to the Instagram and the Facebook, but frankly, they're not that good. 
All right, finally, for this part of the episode only, not the end of the episode by a long shot, but for this part of the episode, let's talk about Elizabeth April. When she was 18, she went on a 10-day meditation retreat and woke up one night to find a huge white alien head like hovering over her. She was like, oh my God, there's a head right there. Several of these aliens that had these huge white heads that she calls tall whites because she has no imagination at all. Um, now, she claims they're about eight and a half feet tall, very skinner, very skinner, very skinny, not skinner, very skinny and paper white in color. She says they took her out of bed and out of her room, at which point they, quote, shot up to their spaceship. Now, while she was up there, she claims they implanted something in her ear with a metal machine. And after the experience, she says, quote, a whole world of everything, a whole, a whole world of everything new opened up for me. As invasive as that was, and the fact that they put this implant in my ear, regardless of all of that, it still opened me up to the possibilities. It was in my predestined contracts to be abducted at the time, at that age, by that species. Don't sign me up for any of those predestined contracts. In fact, you know those app things, like you go to an app and they have that, that stuff, that terms of services you have to read and nobody reads it? Well, that's why you should read it. Because for all you know, you were agreeing to have a predetermined time to be abducted and age. So if you want a bunch of really tall white aliens that you call the tall whites coming at you, that's how you get them. Always read the terms of services, kids. Alrighty, before I end this section, I, there is one little part, like let's call it an addendum to the alien abduction parts of these stories. I found an interesting article about the most common things people say after alien abductions. And I'm not talking like, oh my God, I just had an alien abduction. I mean, specific phrases that they all seem to say. So here are just a few of them. My body remembered, but my mind did not. It turned out I had been gone for three days. Three days seems to be the most common phrase that people say. I couldn't move. Well, that's sleep paralysis. They did what they wanted to me. They took my eggs, semen, child, whatever. I knew something was terribly wrong with my body. Oh, and that's the last one. I knew something was terribly wrong with my body. These are the most common things that people say after alien abductions. Now, all in all, I got to say, this is not how I want to get to fly in a UFO. These sound terrible. I don't want, I couldn't move. I don't want they did what they wanted to me. I don't want they took my egg, semen, and or child. I don't want my body remembered, but my mind did not. That's one of the most common phrases, really? Um, sounds terrifying. Do not like it. Do not want it. Thank you. Come again. Alrighty, let's see how long I have been babbling to you guys. Yeah, so it's been about an hour, maybe a little over. So let's hear from someone else for a little bit. Let's get to our first guest for this episode. Now, you've heard him before. You've asked for more. And now it's time for even more Elijah Hendrickson. He was from episode 67, About the Yeti. Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson get a shout-out on every episode. Not only are they patrons, they're cool as hell, they're friends of mine, and Elijah's got to be one of the best kids I've ever hung out with. But this time, Elijah will be telling us about ghosts in the White House. 
So I'm going to cut right into this one. It's going to go bam, just start going. So that's your little intro. Sit back and enjoy a short little chat with Elijah Hendrickson. What made you go like, oh, this is going to be the sequel to one of the best rated Paranormal Almanac episodes ever? Mm-hmm. Is it Was it like just something that you've always wanted to do an episode about? Or did you find a book and you were like, oh, this is perfect? Or I was just thinking of what episode I could do. Yeah? Like what I could do. And there's lots of stuff, so this is one thing that there's some books about that you haven't done it yet. Yeah, no, I really haven't. I'm I'm excited to hear this one. So, all right, so tell us what what's the episode going to be about? It's going to be about Ghosts of the White House. Ghosts of the White House. All right, I, I can dig that. And I turn it over to you, Elijah Hendrickson, telling us about the Ghosts of the White House. There's been many reports of ghosts in the White House. Some go as far back as the early 1800s. Almost as long as the building has been there itself. While the White House was completed in October of 1800, the beginning of its story and its first ghost go back just a little while earlier. The land for the White House was donated by a man named David Burns. See, I already didn't know this. You've already taught me something. I had no idea that. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. This is awesome. At first, David didn't want to hand it over the land. It was worth a lot more than what he was going to get, and Mr. Burns was known to be a tough businessman in more than lower room. The government threatened to just take the land. Mr. Burns finally agreed to donate the land at small loss. During one of the negotiations, Mr. Burns insulted George Washington so badly that he refused to ever be in the same room as Mr. Burns. Wait, he made George Washington mad? Yeah. The president, George Washington. Yes. Ah, that's awesome. Do you remember what he said to him? No. No? All right. I'll, I'll look that up. That's cool. He essentially said something about, uh, if it wasn't for you marrying Martha, you wouldn't be anyone. Whoa! Why should we bother listening to you? He's throwing shade at the first president? Yeah. In Go for the it. end, Mr. Mr. Burns may have got the last laugh, because his ghost is reported to be the oldest that haunts the White House. Mr. Burns is one of the ghosts of the White House? Yeah. That's cool. After Burns' death, several people have claimed to have seen or heard his spirit. Two of the most famous reports were by a woman who worked at the White House for more than 30 years named Lillian Parks and a driver for President Franklin Roosevelt. Both of them reported hearing a voice in the yellow oval room the same though come from thin air. Both of them heard the voice say, I'm Mr. Burns. <laughs> Very clearly. Which really helped identifying who was speaking. Well, yeah, the ghost just said who it was. That's awesome. At least they didn't have to wonder who it was. Both Mrs. Parks and the driver were the only ones in that room at that time. Over the years, there's been dozens of unexplained voices in that room in particular. And most people have heard the same voice saying, I'm Mr. Burns. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Just so, just for the listeners, every time he says, I'm Mr. Burns, Elijah does ghost fingers. Like, you know, like, I don't how do you describe ghost fingers? Like spirit fingers. Like, like spirit <laughs> fingers. Some people question why nobody sees the ghost of George Washington in the White House. Unfortunately, he never got to see the White House completed. 
He died in December of 1799 in his home in Mount Vernon in Virginia. Virginia. His ghost has been there many times since his death. So often that New York World Newspaper wrote an article on it in 1890. Wait, so there's a newspaper article about George Washington's ghost in Mount Vernon? In 1890, yeah. That's awesome. Kurt here. Let me uh, jump in with that actual newspaper article that Elijah was just talking about. The following account was reported in the world in the New York World Newspaper in 1890. Of course, the most interesting of all the bedrooms is the one belonging to the immortal George and in which he died. In it is the original four-poster four bed whereon Washington passed his last moments. This historic chamber is haunted. Of that, there would seem to be little doubt. Many people within recent years have slept in it, and they declare that they were awed by the viewless presence of the nation's first president. They deny earnestly that the notion is based on imagination. Few of these temporary occupants have been able to get any sleep. Obviously, it is one thing to see a ghost and quite another thing to feel one to be aware of the nearness of a strange and brooding specter. They all agree that Washington visits his chamber in the still watches of the night. Mrs. William Beale and her friend of hers spent a night at Mount Vernon. At their own request, they were permitted to occupy Washington's bedroom. In the middle of the night, they were awakened by the sputtering of their candle. They had lighted one surreptitiously and were burning it in the middle of a basin of water. Fancied that they saw, fancied they saw a spook, it went out with a noise, and they began to feel alarmed. Mrs. Beale said to her friend, You were on the side of the bed where Washington died. The other replied, No, I'm not. He died on your side. Finally, they decided that that question was doubtful, and there was no more sleep for them that night. They got up, dressed themselves, and sat around until morning, scared by every squeak of the window at and at one moment, we're sure they heard Washington's sword clank distantly in a corner. Okay, back to Elijah. The first people to live in the White House was the second president, John Adams, and his wife, Abigail. It had 64 rooms, but none of them were finished. At the time, some people called it the President's Palace, or the Executive Mansion. I would. That's a good, that's a good name for it. I don't like the President's Palace, but the Executive Mansion, that's a good name for it. Mm -hmm. The name White House wouldn't be used for almost 100 years later. Wait, they didn't even call it the White House when they first opened up the White House? See? Again, I didn't know that either. The ghost of Abigail Adams has been seen many times in the area where the East Room once stood. People reported seeing a woman wearing a cap and a shawl while carrying laundry and smelling soap. This may be explained by the wood in the house trapping and releasing the smells. Except the building was burnt to the ground during the War of 1812. Wait, the White House was burnt to the ground? Yep. Again, I didn't think I knew that. Did you know that? Really? Alright, I'm dumb. I didn't know that. I don't remember that. It was rebuilt from the skeleton of the building's outer walls. Another of the White House ghosts is said to be a British soldier with holding a torch. Maybe it's the one who lit the fire that burnt down our nation's capital. At least three people who lived in the White House believe in ghosts and saw or heard them in their time there. 
The first was Mary Todd Lincoln, the wife of President Abraham Lincoln. She often held seances in the house to contact the dead loved ones. First, her son Willie, and then later her husband. During her time in the White House, she claimed to have seen or heard the ghosts of Andrew Jackson, Thomas Jefferson, John Tyler, and her son Willie. Really? Hmm? So she saw, or she heard, or saw, multiple ghosts. Abraham Lincoln's wife heard or saw multiple ghosts while trying to contact ghosts. All right, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw a curveball and ask you a question. Do you think that she is responsible because she was trying to conjure ghosts? Do you think that there wouldn't have been so many ghosts at the White House if she wasn't trying to mess with ghosts? No, I think it's just because she was uh, trying to contact them. And it says right here that she held seances. So she's trying to... I think she did it, like, a lot of times. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that's probably why why there's so many ghosts. I, I'm That's my guess. Yeah. Was she really seeing all of these ghosts? Or had the weight of her losses pushed her too far? Wait, what, what was it? What is the answer? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? All right, yeah, that's cool. Go ahead. Calvin Coolidge's wife, Grace, claimed to have seen the ghost of Abraham Lincoln himself in the yellow oval room. She was the first to see the ex-president, but not the last. Wait, so this is again in that yellow oval room? Yeah. So the yellow oval room seems to be like the haunted room of the White House then, right? Yeah. Also in 1911, a military aide staying in the White House named Archibald Butt reported seeing the ghost of a young boy staring at the foot of his bed while he slept. Wait, what was his name again? Archibald Butt. Yeah, that's real. His last name is Butt. Uh-huh. All right. Here, B-U-T-T. I'm just, Bald am, Butt. Uh, you could be making stuff up and I wouldn't know any better, so go ahead with your Butt story. <laughs> the appearance of the boy and his clothes matched that of Willie Lincoln. Maybe Mary Lincoln really was seeing her son at the foot of her bed as well. President Harry S. Truman wrote in several letters and through many famous stories that he told of his belief that the White House is haunted. Almost every night he reported phantom footsteps and knocks on his door. He documented each encounter and begin to consider the ghosts almost as friends toward the end of his presidency. There's been dozens of documented accounts from guests in the White House over the years. Sir Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of England during World War II, claimed to have a strange encounter with the spirit of Abraham Lincoln. Queen Julian of the Netherlands also claimed to have met the former president in 1952. Weird. The frequency of the encounters only increase as time goes on. Someday I'd love to visit such a historic place and do an investigation. That'd be awesome. We can both do an investigation of the White House. That'd be cool. I'm doing the yellow room. I'm calling dibs on the yellow room. You can you can go to bed and wake up with uh, Willie Lincoln. Was that his name? You can wake Willie Lincoln staring at you. Okay. Again, I'm impressed with the research that you did because... I learned some stuff that I never knew before. Um, I think you made up that Archibald Butt's name or whatever. No. But uh, but besides that, I think that was amazing. No, that was awesome. That was really cool. 
So you would you would um you would stay at the White House and do a paranormal investigation if you could? Sure. Why not? Do you think the Secret Service would let you? No. <laughs> well, it doesn't hurt to ask. Why do you think so many people are seeing Abraham Lincoln's ghost? I don't know. Like he's the most popular but I don't really know why. Do you think it's because and spoiler, if you didn't know this, do you think it's because Lincoln got assassinated and because of the way he died, he's, you know, like violent deaths make ghosts? Ah, I knew that. Would you, would you, I hope so. Would you be more scared to see, who, all right, which ghost of that list of ghosts that you just told me, which ghost would scare you the most if you saw them? Would it be Lincoln? Would it be Mary Todd? Would it be the boy? Not the boy. See, because kid ghosts are spookier, right? Mm, yeah. I agree, man. I don't like kid ghosts. I don't like anything about it. Now, you said that, uh, who was it, Harry S. Truman had a weird encounter with Lincoln, right? Yeah. Do you remember what the weird encounter was? Uh, Dad could tell you. Oh, no, that was uh, Winston Churchill's. Oh, Winston Churchill's. Yeah, Winston Churchill. Yeah, that was when, uh, I mean, this was from, from, from his own telling, so it could have been a little more of a tall tale, because from his, from his own, uh, admission he had just poured himself another glass of scotch <laughs> to sit in the bathtub with his cigar uh, had just gotten out naked when he saw the president appear before him and reportedly the the first thing that came to mind for him to say was <laughs> mr president i believe you have me at a disadvantage <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so once again i want to thank todd jamie and especially elijah hendrickson for that awesome piece about the haunted White House or the ghosts of the White House. Can't thank him enough. That kid is the best. But let's talk about other Washington, D.C. buildings that are haunted. The first one up is the Capitol Building, and it has a few ghosts that wander the halls, the underground passages, and pretty much every part of it. The ghost of a lost Civil War soldier from the building's brief stint as a wartime hospital is often seen just wandering around aimlessly which has got to be sad for a ghost you know you're finally dead you finally can move on to the next thing nope you're going to wander around these endless halls and underground passages also the ghost of john quincy adams can often be heard shouting his final words in the speaker's lobby but the one that i really want to talk about when it comes to the capitol building is the demon black cat. That's right, a demon black cat is seen in the Capitol building to this day. It's probably the most common of all ghost stories in the Capitol, partly because of the physical evidence, says Steve Livengood, who's the chief tour guide of the U.S. Capitol Historical Society. Now, stories about this black cat date back to at least the 19th century. He says the story probably goes back to post-Civil War era, the main thing is that the people who would see it particularly were the night watchmen. The most common version of the legend goes that a guard was on patrol one night when he saw a black cat approaching. Now in those days, cats were not an uncommon sight in the building because rats. There were a hell of a lot of rats. So how do you get rid of some rats? You get some cats. What happens to the cats? They become demon cats apparently. But every, anyway... However, as the uh, cat came closer and closer to this guard, it grew in size until it was as large as a tiger. The story goes that the monster cat pounced on the guard who fell down and tried to protect himself, but the creature vanished in midair. Now, tales of the demon cat have a number of different variations. Now, later sightings are said to have scared people to death, or, like the Mothman, this seems to be the most common one, 
like the Mothman, the cat's appearance have also been linked to national tragedies and presidential transitions. So let's hope we see a black demon cat sometime soon. Now, there are a couple of things in the Capitol building that suggest a cat of some kind exists. Like, there is a group of shallow paw prints in the concrete of the small Senate Rotunda. In 1898, the Capitol building was damaged by a gas explosion. And again, according to Living Good, the uh, chief tour guide, in some spots, the original stone was replaced by concrete. He says it's quite possible that a cat walked across the wet concrete just enough to leave some impressions. So, if you go there, you can actually see these faint cat uh, paw prints. They're very shallow paw prints. Apparently, these are from 1898. You can see it when you come out of the old Supreme Court chamber. There may be uh, six or eight pretty clear ones, he says. And in another part of the building, he also notes that the letters DC have been scratched into the concrete. Now, everyone says that's the demon cat putting its initials in there, which is, of course, utter bullshit. And another thing that keeps the story alive is the other guards realize that if they see the cat and get attacked, then they got a day off. That's how history got written back then. The first guy that did that who had the black cat pounce on him. We got a day off. So guess what? A little bit after that, another guard just happened to see it and he got a day off. And then another and another and another. Now, as much as I doubt there's a demon black cat in the Capitol building, I got to say, I want to believe. All right, but that's not the only haunted location besides the White House in Washington, D.C. Far from it, in fact. The President's Park, Lafayette Park is what it's called, and the nearby buildings are reported to be homes to go such as Philip Barton Key II. Who's that, you might ask? Well, good, because I didn't know either. So let's let Wikipedia tell you. He was an American lawyer who served as the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia. He's most famous for his public affair with Teresa Sickles and his eventual murder at the hands of her husband. So Congressman Daniel Sickles of New York killed this guy, Philip Barton Key II. He defended himself by saying temporary insanity. And that was the first time that the temporary insanity fence had ever been used in the United States. So it's not surprising that Philip Barton Key is still seen around. It's a, he's a murder victim. That's pretty on course with for how to make a ghost, basically. And another ghost that's seen there is Stephen Decatur, who died there following pistol duels, which is the dumbest way to die. Look, all I know is I am really glad I never have to worry about being called upon to duel because someone called me a flap doodle or something. Ooh, a flap doodle. Let's go outside and shoot each other with these useless, dumb fucking guns. Look, I'm glad you're a ghost because you died dumb. You challenged someone to a duel and you got shot in the head? Sucks to be you, man. Suck it up, ghost. All right, the Octagon is also supposedly one of the most haunted buildings in D.C. But like I said, it's basically all of D.C. There's a bunch of politician ghosts and slave ghosts have been spotted at the Octagon. Then there's the National Theater, who is said to be haunted by the ghost of actor John McCullough who was murdered in the 1880s by a fellow thespian. The first sighting of McAuliffe's ghost was shortly after he died. On the opening night of a production, his ghost was seen throughout the theater. The ghost appeared to be assisting in the last-minute preparations for the opening. He checked the props and the scenery, and another time, the performer who personally knew McAuliffe witnessed his ghost sitting in the audience in an orchestra chair. So this guy loved the theater, and frankly, you get free labor out of it because he's a ghost now. 
Now, the guy went on to say, the, the actor that saw him from the stage said, the ghost was just calmly watching the performance. McAuliffe's ghost was also spotted backstage, on staircases, in dressing rooms, and often seen on stage dressed as Hamlet. I found a 1978 article about his ghost by The Post, and it says a stagehand once found the remains of a, quote, very old gun. The gun was taken to the Smithsonian for dating, where it was estimated to originate from around the time of McCulloch's death. In the same article, it quoted an article from 1896, also about McCulloch's ghost. It talked to someone that had known him in life and after death. They said his apparition has been observed and recognized over and over again by his personal friends in the theatrical profession. It was seen so recently as one day week before last by Frederick Bond, the well-known comedy actor. Oh, you know, come on guys, you know the well-known comedy actor Frederick Bond. He was uh, sitting after the performance at the prompter's table when suddenly heard a slight noise and looked up. After he had, the, after he had sat there a while, he felt convinced that he was not alone on stage. He saw a man walk across the stage, and Bond jumped to his feet and cried, John McAuliffe! Then it vanished in the wings. Sticking with DC for a little bit, the Hay Adams Hotel has a host, nope, has a ghost of Marion Clover Hooper Adams, who is, the, who is the wife of Henry Brooks Adams, the celebrated 19th century journalist, who was the grandson of John Quincy Adams, and the Woodrow Wilson house is allegedly haunted by former president Woodrow Wilson himself, who spent his final years here before dying in his bedroom in 1924. Staff and guests of the Omni Shoreham Hotel have heard faint voices, cold breezes, and doors slamming shut and opening, and televisions and lights turning on and off on their own accord. Then there's the Mary Surratt house, S-U-R-R-A-T-T house. It's the one-time boarding house of Mary Surratt, Surratt? I don't know who was a conspirator in the Lincoln assassination. Now, she was hanged and is still seen here to this day. Now, luckily, you can see her ghost while you eat Chinese food because the Mary Surratt house is now the Chinese restaurant called Walk and Roll. There's also another really boring on the outside building. It's called the Federal Aviation Administration Headquarters, and it has a horrible past. It was once the site of two very large slave pens on Independence Avenue. Now, many people have reported hearing the sounds of voices and chains coming from the building's grounds at night. So like I said, it seems like all of Washington, D.C. is haunted. I'm sure I'll do another episode just about the hauntings of Washington, D.C. But if you're going to Washington, D.C. and you want to take a ghost tour, there are a bunch that you can take. Let me go over some real quick ones, real quick. The first one is the... Fiat Lux Tour, which is haunted in historic Georgetown. Now, it's a private expedition, and basically you see the steps in The Exorcist, which I'll talk about in a minute, the Erie Oak Hill Cemetery, the Old Stone House, and a lot more. The next one is the Americost, Ghost of Lafayette Park and Capitol Hill Haunts, and it's a guided tour through, tra through Tragedy Square, as Lafayette Park is known, and includes stories of conspiracies, crimes of passion, duels, and assassinations that have sparked a spooky presence in the historical section of D.C. Up next is D.C. by Foot, Ghosts of Georgetown, and White House Ghost Tours. Uh, this one is a obviously a foot tour. It takes you behind the symbols of the past that shroud the area, revealing the ghosts and spirits that have called Georgetown home for hundreds of years. You'll even get the inside scoops on curses, startling incidents, and, again, 
those infamous exorcist steps, which I'll talk about in a little bit. The next one is called the Soul Strolls Twilight Tours at Congressional Cemetery. It's a twilight tour right in the Congressional Cemetery itself. Um, it reveals stories of people buried in the cemetery through guided tours led by costume interpreters. I hate that shit. Uh, the tours are spread out over four nights, so you have plenty of chances to catch them, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Scary DC Tours Horror on the Hill is a historically accurate and chilling ghost tour. Uh, Washington Walks, the most haunted houses, the most haunted houses. This one takes you through Lafayette Square and uh, learn of haunted tales concerning Navy hero Stephen Decatur, Henry Adams and his wife and the unforgettable night on April 14th, 1865. You also have a chance to see the octagon. And I got to say, every place that I could see, every tour, every everything says the octagon is the most haunted house. And lastly, the National Buildings Museum Ghost Tour and Escape Room. The National Building Museum is famous for highlighting the greatest achievements in architecture, but the building itself has a past filled with spirits and scary stories. From being the spot where the pensions of dead and wounded soldiers during the Civil War were handed, were handled to spirit sightings in the 1970s, to shoes spotted underneath the floors. What? To shoes spotted underneath the floors. That doesn't seem really scary. Uh, but anyhow, so you got a variety of ghost tours that you can take, and this is only a small percentage of them. There are a lot more. But, finally, it's not really a haunted location, but it's worth going to. Make sure you head on over to 3600 Prospect Street, Northwest Washington, D.C., 2007. Once again, that's 3600 Prospect Street, Northwest Washington, D.C., 20007. This is the exterior filming location from The Exorcist with those iconic Exorcist steps. In fact, it's known as Exorcist Steps or the Hitchcock Steps. So if you're going there, that's the best photo op you can get while you're there, really. Screw taking a photo with the White House in the distance. Go there instead. It's equally as spooky as everything in the White House. Alrighty, that, that about does it for the first part of this episode of Paranormal Almanac. But don't worry, I'll be right back. Here's that intermission I was telling you all about earlier. Good evening. It's intermission time. And during the next 10 minutes, we invite you to visit our refreshment stand located in the center of the drive-in. Our service is friendly and quick. Find hot dogs, hamburgers, pizza, your favorite candies, hot and cold beverages, and other delicious snacks. So add to your fun of watching the movie. Visit our refreshment stand right now during our 10-minute intermission. We're glad to have you with us tonight, and we hope you'll come to see us often. It's great to get out to the movies. Okay, are you guys back? Did you hit the restroom? Did you get a snack? Did you remember that I told you to turn out the lights? Did you fall when you got up because the lights were out? Do you want more questions? Are you ready for even more Paranormal Almanac? No? Well, too bad. Because let's keep going. 
This next interview is one that I've wanted to do even before I did Paranormal Almanac. I've wanted to have him on my last podcast. I wanted to make the world hear this story, let the world hear this story. And then something happened. The Navy UFO encounters came to light. And I freaked out because I knew someone at one of the encounters. That first video that came out a long time ago, like 2014, whenever it was, of that first Tic Tac when the pilots were like, what is that thing? That, that video? I knew somebody that was at one of those encounters. So you finally get to hear a story that I heard years ago from a good buddy of mine. He was there working for the Navy during one of these encounters. Let's just jump right into it, okay? And if you don't know about these encounters, where the hell have you been? They've been all over the news. They've been everywhere. The Navy have gone on record to say that these unidentified aerial phenomena, these UAPs or UFOs as they're more commonly known, are real and we don't know what they are. Okay, let's jump right into the story. Because of all of the UFOs in the news lately, I wanted to make sure that I had a chance to talk to you on this 100th episode because I thought this was going to be the perfect story for it. So first of all, thanks, man, for being on it. Yeah, no worries. We've been talking about this forever, so it's about time. In 100 episodes, a pretty good spot to jump in. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, for the listeners, for a little backstory, I've known you. How long have I known you? 10 years? 11? It's got to be at least 10 years because, yeah, the Arclight event or whatever, the theater event was like in 09, so. Oh, yeah, the Vista. That's right, the Vista Theater. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So I've known you for at least 10 years, and I've heard these stories, and it was just always a cool story that I've heard, but, you know... Because of recently, you know, well, go ahead, jump in and tell me, or, or why, why am I having you on here? Let's, let's start with that. Well, I had a UFO encounter, which, right, right, like, right away that puts people on, like, okay, this guy's an idiot. But, <laughs> um, but 400 other people saw it, so, you know, I have a little more credibility here than maybe some. But I was, uh, I was on the USS Princeton. You know, it's, it's weird, when I, when I remember this, I remember as we were on deployment, but like talking to people, it actually happened. We were just off, off the coast of the Catalina Islands. It all just kind of like, it's just when you're away at sea, it all just kind of merges together into one big water. Oh, like, sure. Oh, yeah. Excursion. It's just like, I, you, you don't even know what day it is, you know? You don't see the sunlight sometimes for a couple of days. Oh, definitely. And for, um, those, anyway, for those that so, don't, don't know, what is the USS Princeton? It's a cruiser. Uh, we were in the Nimitz Battle Group. It's a guided missile cruiser kind of like point guard for the fleet and our ship so my job was i was at aegis display tech i was a patrolman aegis display tech and that's basically a fancy way of saying i was mostly a cheater repairman like i, I took <laughs> care of all the radar consoles the actual screens that the operators sit at and i took care of the big large displays and combat systems that you know that they basically put up the big map and you know the course the course and everything and our ship was cool because we had just radar system uh, it's called CEC and it basically it took all the radar data from all the ships in the battle group and it linked it up into one big display so that that was pretty new back then. actually it was brand new only a couple our battle group was one of the only ones that had it anyway what what year was this so people were telling me it was like 04 i guess i remember it as being on deployment in 05 but i think it was 2004 okay and so we were off the coast of the Catalina Islands. And Catalina is like, we we basically do, uh, it's long and boring. Anyway, we go there <laughs> to, to load up the ship with stuff. 
and then we take off. We go on do these little, I don't want to call them missions, but we go on these little training missions. So anyway, you know, it was just like a, a pretty normal day, and started hearing a bunch of chatter on the radio, and one of my, I think one of my buddies must have run into this job and was like, hey, you got to come up and check this out. So I went up to Combat Systems, which is like, it's that dark room that you see in the movies where, you know, it's all super dim light and you get all these green screens flashing in everyone's face. And, oh, yeah. You know, it looks super cool. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's it's mostly just a bunch of people who are just popped up on coffee and screens all day, you know, waiting <laughs> for something to happen. So when something, when something does happen, it like, everyone's hyped up. But, you know, I went up and it, it basically already happened. It was super fast, but some some of the jets in our group picked up these objects, and I don't know. I just I actually just watched, um, what was that show? The Blink One Eighty Two guy did. Oh yeah, Tom uh, DeLonge. Unidentified. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, they, and they and they had guys from my ship. There was uh, two or three guys from my ship talking about it. Then one of them was in my work center. Like I worked with him every day for three or four years. And anyway, I didn't have any real involvement directly. But, you know, the whole crew and most of the battle group, you know, knew about it and saw what happened. And so this is the basically this is the 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 videos that we've been seeing lately. Like you said, from the unidentified and whatnot, they've been talking about these Navy encounters with UFOs, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the first time I saw that the fighter jet video was on the Internet way after. I hadn't seen that one. There's got to be like three or four different videos. And I guess I haven't. I guess there's one or two new ones out there. I should probably sit down and search. But uh, what I'll get to a little later, there's one other video that I saw that I think isn't out there. And that was actually from like a video camera. Oh, wow. But anyway, so the, the basic gist of it was, you know, the, the objects just started popping up and we couldn't track them properly, which is, you know, that's not, that's not a common thing. Occasionally you get glitches on radar, right? Like you'll pick up noise and it might look like an object but this wasn't that these these things were like popping up all over the place and basically the jets couldn't keep up and i don't know it was just kind of a thing that happened was there was there we saw ufos you know oh yeah was there a panic though like you guys are tracking something or not tracking something that that jets are seeing i wouldn't necessarily call it panic like it's not like to my recollection no one's finger was like on the button right or ready to like launch a strike it, it takes a lot of escalation to get to that there's a there's a lot involved before you ever like with fire on something or yeah or anything like that it's mostly you're just tracking it like what is it and again you know you pick up glitches sometimes you get noise so you know they have to be sure first sure but uh anyway so it was just kind of this thing that happened and everyone was you know everyone was talking about it It was kind of a joke even you know like one of my buddies you know he was making like tinfoil a joke he was, <laughs> you know wrapping his head up in foil and was like, I don't want them to suck my brains out. You know, it was, it was just, to me, it was never like, oh man, we saw aliens today. It was just like, what the hell was that? Who's, whose ships are these? You know, yeah. are they ours? Is it something that, you know, they're testing? Because that, that's not out of the realm of possibility to me. And so it, it just like, again, it was just kind of this weird fluke day. Started getting concerning was when our captain came over the 1MC, which is like the ship's loudspeaker. And he basically... I don't remember his exact words, but he basically was like, well, well, what you saw was actually ice falling off of a passing by aircraft. So uh-huh. Ice gets on the bottom of the aircraft and it falls off. And you saw it just fall into the ocean. I want to make sure that you guys heard that part. He said that the captain said that it was ice falling off a passing aircraft. You know, like ice chunks off of like an airliner kind of thing. Uh, like a like a jumbo jet, commercial jet kind of a thing. He was saying it was ice 
falling off a passing airliner. Basically, these things were, they were shooting around uh, in this crazy erratic flight pattern. And, you know, think about you throw a ball as it starts coming down, it's got curvature to it, you know, or, yeah. or anything, you know, a car rounding a corner. It's got a, it's got a curve a little bit. Yeah. But these things were either moving like so fast and had such, were able to shift propulsion so quickly that it looked like they were moving at 90 degree angles. Jeez. And they kind of shot around at 90s and then they shot straight down into the water. And they were gone for for a little bit, and then they shot back out straight out of the water. Wow! And so these things went know, under um, the water, completely under the water. Yeah, like disappeared, like submerged. And so the on our ship we had video cameras that are mounted on the fantail and on the forward, and basically because there's there's two missile decks on either side of the ship, front and back. And the cameras are really just to record the launches, you know, when they do happen. Sure. Um, but these cameras are on. You know, they have like a joystick control. They can be moved around. They can be zoomed. You know, even sometimes when we're on, when we're in port on watch, we use them to like, you know, check out the area. And, you know, if someone sees something, we can zoom in and see what it is coming towards the ship. But anyway, whoever was operating the cameras actually caught like actual video video of it. Really? And yeah. And so I knew someone in basically someone who worked with storing, you know, they have a security clearance and they basically, you know, hide data. And those videos were, like, immediately taken and given to them. But they were happening up in combat systems, you know, and they were on our screens. So we saw them. And and really, when you look at them, all it looked like was, like, paper plates landed on the water. They kind of sat on the surface for a minute, and then they disappeared. And the camera just stayed focused in that same spot. It moved around a little bit trying to see them again. But then they, you know, shot straight back out again. And And really, it looked like... You know, when you watch the video, you're like, what am I, what am I looking at? I don't understand what I'm seeing. You know, it's it literally just like paper plates, you know, really floating around, bobbing around and then disappear. And it's only, you know, in total, it's only like maybe 15, 20 seconds of footage. So, but, so wait, um, so these things look like saucers then? I mean, it, it, to me, they really, it looked like paper plates floating on the floor. Like, that's the best way I could describe it. I couldn't tell you how big they actually were. You know, I don't know how close the camera was zoomed. It's just, you know, mostly calm water bouncing around with these these things. Oh, wow. That's incredible. All right. So, oh, sorry. Continue. I didn't mean to cut you off. Keep going. Yeah, this is amazing. Uh, well, I mean, that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of it. Okay. Um, so so this, there's video out there. I mean, obviously, there's a good chance that we'll never see it, but there is it's been classified video. Now, did they say that, you know, it was it was more than one time that you saw these, right? No, no, it was just that one. That it was one just time. the one time. Okay, that, and and he said like that don't, one day, yeah. and it it what it was ice falling from a plane. Yeah, that that was the thing that was kind of funny. Like you know, at first you're just like okay, whatever, all the stuff all the time. Where it's like okay, I guess we're not going to talk about that. And you know, this was never to me. You know, never no one ever was like hey, you can't talk about this. No one ever like you know said there was anything super secret about it. It wasn't. It wasn't. Didn't seem secret until they gave us that lame excuse. You know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, were you surprised when you saw some guys from your ship on that TV show? So, I had friends from a different ship who messaged me, and they were like, hey, weren't you on the Princeton? You should watch the show. There's guys from your ship talking you know, talking about it. So, I went and, and found the episode and watched it, and I was like, oh, wow. It's not just, like, guys from my ship. It's, you know, people I knew pretty well. So, that's I, I, yeah, it's kind of crazy that this all has blown up so much. I got tagged in a Facebook post about maybe three or four years ago when that first video popped up and was 
supposedly declassified or whatever, the, the yeah. first F-18 video. Yeah. And I guess actually that was that was the first time I saw that one. But that's not the video I had seen originally. You know, that, or that was not my that was not my experience with it. It was the same day and it was the same battle group, but that was like a whole different angle to it. So do you think that? All right, you said that you, you said it earlier. Do you think they might be experimental aircraft, possibly ours? What I don't know. That's, I guess that's how I that's how I rationalized it to myself. You know. Sure. Even after you saw the the what you call the paper plate kind of thing, you still think they could be something, and the ninety degree angles and everything. You still think they could feasibly some be something man made? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't see why not. Oh, sure. You know, it's funny because the technology that you do get exposed to in the military, at least in my experience, the stuff you do get exposed to. The stuff that you rely on, the stuff that like you use every day. Yeah. Most of it was like built, especially on my ship. Most of it was like built in the seventies and eighties and nineties. You know, like these are. It's, it's it's just crazy to think that you know we're relying on such old stuff. Sure. Um, but it still works, and it still does exactly what it's supposed to do. And you know the way you repair stuff is they've like military equipment is kind of compartmentalized. So when when a piece breaks. That, that piece, like say, uh, like a card in a computer, like a, you know, picture of a circuit board in a computer. Sure. That's kind of how stuff is built. It's built compartmentalized. If a component breaks, you take that whole card out and you replace the card. You got to do it quick. You got to do it fast. You know, you got to be able to replace stuff on the fly. And, you know, you keep extra parts on board. And so certain things are built a certain way and they're old. But, I mean, we know how fast things move. We know, oh, you yeah. know how quickly technology advances. And, and you read every day about someone invented this thing or look what we can do now. And so it's, it was never crazy to me to think that it could be something of ours that we're experimenting sure. with. Sure, sure. I mean, more scary is to think that it's a, a different hostile body. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a chance that it's not ours. It's not aliens and it's not ours. It could be China or Russia's or whoever. Now, did you yeah. see... Yeah, oh, totally. Now, did you see the... Just recently, they came out... The Navy came out and said these UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, are um, are real and they don't know what they are. What do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I, I read that. I mean, isn't that what you're supposed to say, though? Oh, definitely. I, I guess it's weird. I guess, first of all, it's weird that they acknowledged it. You never hear... Like, that's just strange to me in the first place. The fact that it was acknowledged. Sure. I just... That just seems... Strange. Oh yeah, definitely. I guess because how often do you hear about that? You know, oh yeah, that's yeah, that's something you're not supposed to know about. But yeah, it's real. I don't know. The, the whole situation is just—it's so weird that because you know it was what 14, 15 years ago. Yeah. And it was just a weird day, but now it's kind of like a big thing again. Oh yeah, it's everywhere. Everybody's talking about it, which is exactly why I was like, man, I got to get you on this show. I got to get you on. Uh, you know, especially if not on the show, but on this episode yeah. because of it. I mean, you were a witness to the biggest news story, you know, about UFOs in decades. Hey, not just myself, but like the whole battle group, you know, your carrier. Like, I don't know. I, you know, I barely said put on a carrier. But I think they had like three or four thousand people. Sure. You know, and then each of the small ships has got a couple hundred. We had around 400 on mine. So there's like almost a whole city worth of people out there who experienced it. You know, this, this, I guess this is a hard one to sweep under the rug. Well, that's what I was just going to ask. Why do you think then that there isn't 2,000 people or 4,000 people or even 400 people coming forward going, yeah, I saw it? Well, because probably just, just like to me, it was just a, you know, it was just a thing that happened. It wasn't, you know, no, to, to my knowledge, no one got abducted or probed or anything. <laughs> or, you know, it seems like the, the crazier the story, the more like 
likely you are to hear about it. Right? Oh, yeah. And it was just like, oh, this thing flew by, and we don't know what it was. That was cool, you know, and that was kind of... But it's something that you know, you've never you've never seen technology... Oh, I guess I should ask you this. Have you ever seen technology like that since that day? No, honestly. I mean, we've got cars trying to break world records and, and you know, basically rocket cars. Like, I feel like that's about how fast they were supposed to have been going. But, yeah, to, the, the flight path that... the the right angles and no curvature that 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 blows my mind oh yeah um, it always has but i guess i more than anything just hoped by now we'd have something that could do that oh definitely i mean by 2019 we should we should have something that does that yeah well well like i've said to you in person when i've heard this story i've heard this story a couple of times now actually not in this detail though i gotta say i, le- I learned some stuff today i had never heard you say before so this is awesome um, we've never really talked about it in detail because I wanted to save it for the show. But, I mean, it's always blown my mind that, that you have seen a UFO. Whether you want to say 100% you saw a UFO or not, I mean, technically it's a UFO. It's an unidentified flying object. But in yeah. my mind, personally, I think that you have seen an alien craft. And I, I that always blows my mind that you're, you're you're just like, yeah, it's just something I saw. And I'm not, I'm not really even, like, I'm not a skeptic. No. I don't deny that it could be, you know not from this planet i just don't know either way you know it's not oh yeah i don't want to take a stance on it i just saw it no i actually i actually appreciate that more that you're just like hey i don't know i saw this whatever it was this is what it was i actually appreciate that more i can't thank you enough for coming on and telling your story Alrighty, so that's the end of the interview. I hope you guys enjoyed it i can't thank my buddy enough for coming on like i said i've heard this story for years i've been wanting you guys to hear this story for years as well um Absolutely incredible. He was there. He witnessed something that will definitely go down as one of the biggest UFO stories ever. And I mean that, ever. Whether he thinks it was a UFO or not, I like the fact that he's just saying, I don't know what it was. I respect that a lot. I really do. Can't blame him at all. He saw something that I wish I was there to see that, from the looks of it, this story's not going away. It's only going to get out there more and more. Okay, from there... Let's go on to the next part of this episode. There are a lot of people who only listen to one episode of Paranormal Almanac. And it's always that same episode. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of people who only listen to one episode and go, this guy sucks. But these people hopefully aren't saying that. They're listening to one specific episode of Paranormal Almanac. The Fens Treasure episode. I don't remember what episode number it is. Just scroll back through Paranormal Almanac. Find it yourself. It's called Ben's Treasure. It shouldn't be too hard to find. But these people think that I have some secret knowledge regarding the treasure. And I do. But don't worry about that. Then they hit me up for more clues. Look, I don't have more clues for you. And if I did know really where the treasure was, I'd have the treasure right now. But I will give you an update of sorts. And this first update is coming from CNN, and it says Montana, and it says Montana law enforcement went as far as issuing a warning on Facebook on June 18th, 2019. So just a couple of months ago. Now their primary goal was not to tell hunters to stay away, treasure hunters that is, but to urge them to think about things before they leave because they're putting a burden on local emergency services. In the last couple of years, two people have died. Two have been rescued near death. Several others have had run-in with local law and federal law enforcement. And one told his wife today he was injured but not where he was. That's dumb. 
Now these people are all near Yellowstone National Park and they're all looking for the Forest Fen treasure. Now Sharon, Sharon, damn it. Sheriff Brian Gutkin issued a few choice words of his own about these treasure hunters. He said, look, it is very rough terrain out there. Before you go out there, tell somebody where you're going. Make sure that you have the skills, the preparation, the knowledge before you go out into these rough terrain and tell somebody. If you can't trust the person that you're living with or you can't trust a friend to be like, hey, I'm going here because here's where the treasure is. If you think that friend is going to kill you, then you know what, dude? Get a, get a new friend. Put an email together that postmarks, you know, like you can, you can plan an email to send a day later or two days later and put it in an email exactly where you're going. That'll give you two days head start to get the treasure if you're really going to get the treasure. And if you get hurt, someone can go, oh, shit, Steve sent me this email saying he's out there. We haven't heard from him in two days. He might be dead. Let's go take a look. So this Guten guy, the sheriff guy, says, you must know that this country is unforgiving if you don't give it the respect it deserves. There are bears, snakes, rivers, shoddy cell phone service. You could get hurt by just twisting your ankle, and that'll end it for you. We encourage everyone to vigorously pursue their outdoor passions, but think like a local. He says, consider the volunteers' hours Consider the volunteer hours spent searching if you need to be rescued and the anxiety of those left at home. In the end, is the treasure worth it? Now, just to give you an idea of how much interest is still with this Fen's treasure, here is a very, very recent news story about it. Now, this news story is from September 1st, so just a couple of weeks ago. It's from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and it's saying that an Albuquerque man is claiming he found where Forrest Fenn hid his treasure. Back in 2015, Forrest Fenn told the New York, nope, told the New Mexico Tourism Department that if he were standing where the treasure chest is, he would see trees, mountains, and other clues. He mentions the smell of sage and pine and pinion to me, you don't talk about pinion pine if you're not in New Mexico, says Rob Kittinger, the man who thinks he knows where it's at. He says, it took him to the Aztec mill. I got there and I immediately found this giant ruin that I didn't think existed. I didn't know what I was looking for that. I didn't know I was looking for that. I just kind of stumbled across it in the woods. Now this um, Rob Kittinger is an author. He wrote a book about where he thinks Fen's treasure is. And he says that he's sure he found the spot but he didn't find the treasure chest. I completely believe the treasure was there, but somebody else found it. So, he, like I said, he wrote a book about how he interpreted Fenn's poem that led him to Cimarron. I just wanted to look, I wanted to say, look, I solved it. Here's the solution in this book, and it's not there anymore. So when you're, when you're hiking, just have fun and be safe. Basically, he asked them, he asked Fenn, if he was in the right spot, if he found the spot, and Fenn wouldn't tell him if he was right. His responses were always very brief, usually one or two words. He has never confirmed that I was correct, says Rob Kittinger. KRQE News 13 called Fenn to ask if Kittinger was right, and Fenn said he will never, he will not narrow it down. He, 
And Fenn said he will not narrow down the search area. And if Kittinger thought the treasure was there, he could find a way to get to it. He also did not say if the treasure is still out there. Now, Kittinger's book is available for purchase on his website. And that website is robkadventuredad.com. Now, the book is called Brave in the Wood. And it's sold on Amazon. So if you want to go there, it's Rob Kittinger. Brave in the Wood. If you want to read about his book and see if he was right, if you think there's a chance that he was right, well, here's your chance. But Fenn isn't saying yes or no at all. So I guess we're going to still have to wait and see. Hopefully, it's not going to be too much longer before someone either finds it or Fenn says it's gone or Fenn says where it is gives us another clue. But I'm really hoping that some of you guys find it so you can stop listening to just one episode of Paranormal Almanac. Start listening to all the other ones because, hey, you just might like the show. I've talked about three other treasures, and in a second, I'm going to talk about another treasure. So if you're so into treasure, I've told you about three, I think three, maybe even four. Yeah, four if... Maybe even five, because I've talked about New Oak Island. But I think I've talked at least three, at least three episodes about treasure. So here's another one. This one is called The Hunt for the Golden Owl. And to find this treasure, you're going to need to get to France. Like Fenn's treasure, there is a ton of clues. There are a ton of clues in the book. There are a ton of clues online. And a ton of people who have made it their lives work to find this golden owl. The treasure is a bronze, gold, silver, and diamond-covered owl statue, <clears throat> and it definitely exists. Josh Gates actually saw and filmed it for his show Expedition Unknown just this year. Sur la trace de la Chouard d'Or is not how you pronounce that ad at all, but it's the French version or the French translation, whatever. Look, the book's in French. The, look, the book's in French. I don't speak French. So I'm sure I've got it close, sur la trace de la chouette d'or. It's called The Hunt for the Golden Owl, basically. I'm not doing this podcast in French. I don't know. And it was an, It's an illustrated book that was first published in 1993. Shortly after it was released, its author, Max Valentine, or Valentine, said that he, had, he had secretly hidden the owl sculpture at a location in mainland France. So... Thousands of so-called chauteurs, or owlers, as I can say it, have met in person or online to go over every line, every word, every image, every symbol, every hint of color in the book's 11 enigmas. And these enigmas can be downloaded for free over the internet if you're too cheap to buy the book. There's even an association set up to defend their interests in court, these owlers. I've been looking since August of 1993, says Pierre Bluch, who is a founding member of the A2CO, A2CO Association. I remember at the time thinking we had better get a move on because we're starting three months after the book was published. Little did we realize that, yes, the book was published in 93 as a recording right now. It is... 2019, pretty sure. Yep, definitely 2019. The owl has not been found. From what the experts say, deciphering the clues appears to require a combination of scientific knowledge, imagination, and a head for codes. And not just like, 
well, I like Sudoku, I'll do this. No, I'm talking real codes. Like crazy amount of work has been done to this that is way over my head. Then I was like, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm out of this one. I can't do it. But anyhow, when all is revealed, a golden owl riddle. Back to the west, look for the sentinels. 8,000 measures away, they await you. Find them. You will need to inspect them. The 11 enigmas are supposed to lead to a town in France. And then there is a hidden 12th enigma made up of leftover bits of the 11 that pinpoints to the exact spot. Confused? So am I. But here are some of the clues that just may help you. And remember, if you find the owl or any of the other treasures that I've talked about on this podcast, please, you know, just cut me in a little bit. Just a little bit. I'm not saying give me half. I'm not saying, you know, whatever. Just give me a little bit. It's known for the example that the first riddle, it is known, for example, that the first riddle sets out an order for the subsequent ones based on the wavelength of colors. The opening part of the riddle identifies the starting city of the game, uh, the starting city that you need to start from to find this owl, to start this search. That starting city is bourgeois, Borges, B-O-U-R-G-E-S. I've never been to France. I'm sorry. I would like to go. I'd definitely like to go if someone wants to say, hey, I'm going to, uh, you know, like, hey, I'm going to go find the owl. Do you want to come with me? My treat. Hell yeah, I'll come with you. Just don't kill me out in the boonies of France. Okay, so it's the right way if the arrow targets the heart. That is a simple word game. The solution is another city. Oh, Roncevaux. R-O-N-C-E-V-A-U-X. So there's two cities already that we know about that are correct. The Owlers say these are correct. Now, Valentine said that the remainders are the key to the Owl, and then they can be found in the description of some of the 10 riddles that have wavelengths. Remember that wavelengths of color thing? Yes. He also said the Owl was not on an island. It is on mainland France and is buried at least 62 miles inland. These are all big clues. So three specific techniques were confirmed by Valentine before his death. The use of maps. The reader must do something with a map to reveal the final zone of the game, then use a precise map of that zone to find the cache that contains the owls. The existence of a mega trick, which is the key to using the sequence of 11 riddles to identify the final zone. Many, many readers have already reached the conclusion that such a technique must exist. The existence of a final hidden riddle that completes the game. That's that 12th enigma I was talking about. When a reader finds this riddle in the final zone, he or she will be able to utilize elements of the previous riddles to form and solve the last riddle. The decryption of the last riddle will lead to the cache that contains the owl. Now, like I said, there are a ton of websites with clues and owlers, well, some will help and others that seem only want to confuse and discourage people. So get out there. If you like puzzles, if you really, really like puzzles, you're really good at decoding stuff. If you've been to the FBI building and you decoded what's on their wall and that was nothing to you, if you're a decoder, this seems like it could be a breeze to somebody smarter than me or someone with more time than me to actually look it up and figure it out. All right, you got that? We good? There's another treasure for you to go find and become rich. 
Okay, continuing with updates from past favorite episodes. Hey, Flat Earthers, this one's for you. You have a chance to put an end to your stupid bullshit once and for all. Because for the low, low price of $55 million, you can travel to the International Space Station without having to become an astronaut. That's right, Axiom Space, a company that manufactures space stations, has partnered with Roman and Erica Inc., a New York travel firm, to offer travelers the rare opportunity to visit the International Space Station for 10 days. The program, which begins in 2020, is managed by Mike Suffrandini, the former director of NASA's International Space Station Operation. The price includes training camp, round-trip transport to the station on a SpaceX rocket, and 10 days stay on the International Space Station itself in its habitation modules. Now, these modules are designed with 24-inch windows for the best view of the very round Earth. Training will take the form of a 15-week program spread out over two years and be conducted by actual astronauts along with you. It will include basic safety training, how to adapt to weightlessness, bathroom usage, how to operate systems onboard Axiom and the International Space Station, launch and landing procedures, and how to get your head out of your ass if you think the Earth is flat. Here's your chance. Save up. $55 million. The upcoming Axiom Space Station is slated to eventually replace the International Space Station when it officially retires in 2025. So again, save up your stupid money now and prove us all wrong. Get up there and go, hey, look, guys, it's a flat disc, like I said, with a stupid moon and sun right in the center spinning around it. Oh, and also, how am I in space? Because you idiots say that space doesn't exist. Well, here is your chance. All you idiots, save up your money. It seems like y'all live in your mom's basement anyway, so all you idiots, save up your money. Pool it together. Pick one grand poobah idiot of flat earthers and say, that dude's going up into space. And when he doesn't go up into space, boom, you win. When, in, when he gets up there and it's a big flat disc earth, boom, you win. Here is your chance to go somewhere that you say does not exist, to see something that you say does not exist. Okay, and next up, another one of these updates that I always get. People love to talk about Cielo Drive. If you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you saw Cielo Drive. And I'm sure you heard my interview with David Oman, who lives just a few hundred feet from the site of the brutal murders themselves. Whoa, it's just... Hold, please. Who lives just a few hundred feet from the site of the brutal murders themselves? Well, David Oman has his first book ready for release. It's called The Ghost of Cielo Drive, Ghosts of Cielo Drive, plural. The Afterlife of Sharon Tate and the spirits of the Omen House. Stitch, get in here. Hey. Now, I don't have a release date yet, but I should have one for you guys soon. Oh. Hey, get inside. Right now. Inside now. Stop being a jerk. Stop being a jerk.
Now, I don't have a release date for you guys yet, but I should have one for you guys really soon. And you can always check out every David Omen related thing at theomenhouse.com. Now, I do know that since that movie came out, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, his street has had an endless line of passerbyers and Tarantino fans taking photos by David House, by David's house. So he's had his hands full with the living and the dead lately. I'm going to his house. Um, I'm going to his house next week, or actually this week coming up. Going to his house this week. Hopefully, I want to. I'm hoping to chat with him a little bit more. I'm hoping to do a little bit mini interview with him for the patrons. But um, it's all about this book that he's talked about. So, yeah, there is your update for David Omen. So, piece by piece, you're gonna find out more and more what David Omen has in store for you guys. Before I get to the next segment, I wanted to remind everyone about an awesome interview I did with Harvey Woodlawn. It just dawned on me that I never gave you a way to contact Harvey to get the interview. So it's called The Bicycle Tragedy Meets Paranormal Almanac, an interview with Kurt Sandvig by Harvey Woodlawn. It, it is this awesome zine, and I mean it is really cool. I He's a fantastic interviewer. I really can't say enough nice things about him, but... You can actually buy a copy of the interview from him in zine form by emailing him at deadjohncheever at gmail.com. That's D-E-A-D-J-O-H-N-C-H-E-E-V, as in vegetable, E-R. Deadjohncheever at gmail.com. Like I said, it's a very, very cool zine. I've been sharing the copies that Harvey was nice enough to send me with some friends and family. I really can't thank Harvey enough for doing this interview. So if you got an extra couple of bucks lying around, and frankly, everybody does, skip coffee for one day. For $2, buy yourself a copy by emailing him at deadjohncheever at gmail.com. If you like this show, I think you're going to enjoy the interview. He was a fantastic interviewer. Like I said, asked some great questions. Stuff that I don't think I've really, really talked about on the show, but who knows. But it's, you know, again, I'm biased. It was, a, you know, an interview with me, but I thought it was a fantastic interview. Okay, so that's, again, another shout-out to Harvey Woodlawn. Please check him out. Google Harvey Woodlawn. He's fantastic. Okay, up next is one of my personal favorites from the past episodes. It's listener ghost stories. Now, I like this for two different reasons. I've said this before in the past, but it's really true. I like it because... A, I don't have to write a bunch of stuff or do a bunch of outlines. It's done for me by you guys. But more importantly, and honestly more importantly, B, I love hearing people's ghost stories. They can be about anything. Ghosts, demons, UFOs, aliens, sleep paralysis, black-eyed children. The only rule is they have to be true. So you can send me your ghost stories to paranormalalmanac at gmail.com. Send them soon because... October's coming up pretty damn quick, and every October I do a Halloween episode of Just Listener Ghost Stories. Also, if you have a UFO story, if you've seen a UFO, if you've seen an alien, send me those, because even more soon is a listener UFO story. I've got some great stories. I can't, uh, story episode that is. I have some great stories. I cannot wait for you guys to hear these things. They really are some really fantastic stories. Okay. So, it's listener ghost story time. The first one is from Suzanne. And she says, First one, me and my mom were talking about the other day that I'd forgotten all about it. When I was about 16, a friend invited me to Edinburgh. 
I told my mom and asked if I could go, saying it would be great to see Edinburgh again. Mom said, you've never been there. I said, I have. Mind that time you, me, and Aunt Jean went to Portobello Beach and it was really warm. We went on a bus and had mint chocolate chip ice cream cone. Her face dropped and said, I was pregnant with you at the time when me and Jean went there. She still stands by that to this day and I still remember being there. Second one, I was a journalist for 25. I'm not well at the most, so not working. But in my first job, we had an advertorial to do, i.e. a feature with an advert and a bunch of, uh, and a bit of a blurb about how great the business is. It was a cooperative funeral home on London Road, Bridgeton, Glasgow. The paper was the East End Independent. The home had been there for about 100 years and was being demolished to rebuild a state-of-the-art funeral home. I was doing the article and the photographer went to take pictures of the demolition. He came back and as I was going through the pics to choose for the feature as I was creating it, then I noticed two pics with a woman with Victorian or certainly old clothes on, literally floating in the rubble. Her face was clear as day and she was about 30s, I think. Her top half up to her knees was visible and the rest wasn't. She was floating on top of rubble from the digger. There were no other pics like this. It was the days when we had film in the early 90s. How freaking awesome is that? I want to see this photo. Like, I have a listener who has seen an actual ghost photo, which are really hard to find real ones of. And I'm not talking about ones with uh, orbs or haze or any shit like that. I want to see a real ghost, a full-figured apparition like this one. This is fantastic. So, Suzanne, as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending me that. And the next one says... My name is Chris. I have one psychic instant from over 10 years ago when I was in high school. To put into context, my father had just died and it was the first funeral I'd ever been to. I remember the smell of funeral home flowers and the makeup. Six months later, I was in class and the smell of a funeral hit me in class. And I said out loud, I know this is weird, but I smell death. The next day, the student sitting next to me died in a car accident. The rest of the school year, I was bullied for my psychic experience and it's the only time it ever happened to me. I did my research, and the ability is called... Oh, uh, clairalliance. Claire... Wait, hold on. Clairalliance. Clairalliance? That sounds right. Let's see. Survey says... Clairalliance. But... Clairalliance. That doesn't help me at all. Clairalliance. So, it was called clairalliance. Look. C-L-A-I-R-A-I-L-N-E-N-C-E. -E. It's the first time I ever heard that word. That is very cool. I didn't know that that's what it was called. Up next from Emily, I'm a nurse, and this happened at my first job fresh out of school. There was a patient who had been with us for several weeks. He had been very sick, but was improving every day. This gentleman was very nice. He would always walk the halls with a rust-colored bathrobe over his hospital gown. One day, he unexpectedly coded. His heart stopped and he quit breathing. We did everything we could to try and revive him, but unfortunately he died. From then on, strange things started happening in the room where he passed. It would always happen to our patients with dementia or some other diagnoses, but that would always cause them to be that would always cause them to be confused. They would call out on the call bell and say things like, There's somebody in my room, or you would make your rounds and they would say, There's a man outside my window staring at me, and there's a man standing in that corner. It's not uncommon for patients to hallucinate. We see it a lot. However, if we ask them to describe the man, every time it was the same. They described his features accurately, and he was always a man wearing a rust or orange bathrobe. Talk about the hair standing up on your arms. This went on for years. 
Finally, we had our chaplain come and talk to him. She told him it was okay for him to pass over, that it was time, it was time for him to be at peace, that he did a good job here on earth. She had a Bible and read a verse. After that, no one ever saw him. I've seen many paranormal and spiritual things over the years working in hospitals, but that was the most interesting. I think I've said this on, on previous episodes, and if I haven't, let me say it very clearly here. I love hospital paranormal stories. There is something going on at every hospital. It really does seem like it, from people on the brink of death seeing shadows and things float into the room and up onto the ceiling, to seeing other dead people, to seeing ghosts, to hearing things. Seems like every time I talk to someone in the medical profession, they have a ghost story. They really do. I've known people that have worked in funeral homes, being the only one in there with the deceased in the casket or the deceased on the table, and hearing music, hearing people talking, hearing things move around. I mean, it seems like there's that time right after death where they don't know where to go or what to do, and they seem to be stuck in that place. Now, I know that's not every instance, but it does seem to happen. Like I said, it happens to everybody I know that's ever worked in the medical in industry. So if you have some hospital ghost stories or paranormal stories, or Emily, if you have more and you want to share them, please, please, please share them. I love hearing these stories. Thank you so much for sending this. This next one, I feel bad. I did not write down... I didn't write down the person who sent it to me. I, I apologize to the, the person who wrote this. You know, this is a huge episode. Some things fall through the cracks. This is one of those things. I apologize. But it's a fantastic story, and it says... So I just listened to the sleep paralysis episode, and I need to tell you about my experiences. I've been experiencing sleep paralysis and night terrors my entire life. I'm 35. My mom tells me stories of infant and toddler me waking up in the middle of the night with blood-curdling screams. For the record, I also sleepwalk and talk regularly. I take a, sed I take a sedative now to help with all of it, but it still happens on occasion. Anyway, for as long as I can remember, my sleep paralysis has been accompanied by a human-shaped figure standing in the corner of the room. No eyes, no features, literally just a black shape. I always knew that the figure is pure evil, whatever it was. Fast forward to 10 years ago when I met and married a man who turned out to be evil incarnate. I'm so sorry. Kurt here, so sorry about that. That is the worst. Um, it goes on to say, I will spare you the details. Suffice it to say, he is currently in prison for attempted murder, holy shit, and several domestic violence charges. Again, Kurt here, so sorry. No one should have put up with that shit. The story goes on to say, I'm healing from the trauma he inflicted on me. However, every incident of sleep paralysis and night terror since has been, was met, since we met, has included him. Human shape in the corner, it's him. Don't know what that means or if it just proves that figures are a product of our imagination or whatever, but there it is. Wow, that's a lot to unpack in that story. Holy crap. Uh, besides the paranormal, you dealt with some serious crap, and I'm so sorry that you ever had to put up with that. Um, but again, it sounds like these, you know, you heard the episode, the sleep paralysis episode. Um, it sounds like sleep paralysis. They have the same things. They see that black shape in the corner or a person or, you know, there's no face or whatever, no eyes, no features. Sounds like you're seeing a shadow person during sleep paralysis. Whether or not you think that sleep paralysis is paranormal or if it's um, neurological, I'm not going to, you know, be the one to say that. Okay, up next from listener Ariel. I'm not sure if you still do the ghost stories from... Do the ghost stories from listeners, but I have one about my job. 
I was told when I got hired that there's a man that walks up and down of the uh, walks up and down the line of pack stations at my job and you can smell roses and that he turned the hand dryer on both the men's and women's bathrooms when he's near you. I thought the person who told me this was playing a joke on me, but I believe them now. Too many times since being hired, I've been completely alone in a two-stall bathroom and the hand dryer will kick on like someone's drying their hands. I've seen our maintenance men replace the hand dryer three times on the three years I've worked here. And I will be in a station six feet away from the next nearest person and smell roses or some flowers or something flowery. And once I leave my station, the smell is completely gone. I'm glad you mentioned the maintenance man part of this, Ariel. Because at first I was like, oh, it's a short in the hand dryer, you know. Those things are motion activated. There's something wrong with the motion sensor. It's just kicking on. But I don't know. Now I don't know. Next up from listener Haley. Hiya, Kurt. Hiya, Haley. I have an interesting story I thought you might like to hear. I'm from Sheffield in Yorkshire in... I'm from Sheffield in Yorkshire, England. There is a road seven minutes from me called the Stocksbridge Bypass. It has been deemed as, quote, the most haunted road in Britain. In short, the story includes a monk and a group of children laughing and singing. Ooh. Kurt here. Hell yeah, ooh. All right, back to her. There was also a strange but true TV episode about it all. A little story from my family based on this road. My grandma once told me that she was driving home one night on the bypass with her friend when she saw a woman walking at the side of the road dressed in a white nightgown. All right, let's pause right there. Uh, hopefully you guys have all listened to the episode about uh, people seeing phantom women in white nightgowns. It's always white nightgowns, and it's everywhere. La Llorona. Look, I said it right that time. Sorry I didn't say it right on the episode. Jeez, people. Uh, La Llorona is about a woman in a white nightgown. There are stories around the world of this ghost woman in a white nightgown. It's really bizarre. Okay, back to the story. She pulled up next to her and asked her if she was okay. My grandma said the woman looked very upset and was asking how she could get into the steelworks. My granddad, who worked there, was on a night shift at the time. My grandma told her the steelworks were closed at this time of night, but did tell her how to get there as it was only a quick walk down the hill. My grandma offered to take her home, but she said no. The next day, my grandma asked my granddad what the woman wanted as she seemed very upset. My granddad had no clue what she was talking about, and there was no woman who showed up that night. A little creepy, if you ask me. Anyway, I hope you found the links interesting. Yes, I did, Haley. I found this story interesting, too. All the best, Haley. Thank you so much, Haley. This is a really cool story. I love the women in white um, stories that people keep sending. They keep popping up all around the world. Alrighty, since I'm doing this live, let me take a quick drink and I'll be back for... It's water, don't worry. And I'll be back for uh, more listener stories. Alright, this next one is from Grant. And fun fact, Grant has a story in an upcoming UFOs listener episode as well. So thank you, Grant, for that one too. Anyway, to the meat and potatoes of this email, as Grant says. I don't believe in ghosts. I believe in science. I believe in tangible evidence. But I grew up in what can be called a haunted... What can only be called a haunted house. I will list the events in order from memory. Also, a little preface. My grandfather died a month before I was born, and my, my dad grew up in this same house. 1. The closet door. My closet door as a kid has a, had a latch system on them to keep them closed. One night while in the living room that had, a door, that had a doorway to my bedroom, my mother, father, father's friend, and myself all heard and or saw the latch open and my toys come falling out. Now, this latch had to go up in order to open. Interesting, like that one. Two, the curtains. As a kid, I loved to have the curtains open and allow sunlight into my room. 
One night, my mom asked me to close the curtains that I had left open. I took one step into the room, and the curtains, which were held to the wall behind a toy box, closed. Now, this one could be easy to bunk. I stepped on a board, and the box moved along the curtains to swing closed, but I could never get it to repeat. Again, I'm glad you said that, Grant, because you're right. Opening the door could have eased up the pressure a little bit, and there's a lot of things that could scientifically explain the curtains closing, but like you said, you never got it to repeat. I wasn't there, so who knows? The encyclopedias. My friends always thought that my house was haunted because it was old. Almost all the houses in our town are old. It's an old lumber mill town built out of a drained swamp. About seven friends were over, and they decided to make a Ouija board out of paper letters and wine glass. It was all fun and games until the encyclopedias on the bookshelf began to fall out onto the floor. This, again, would be easy to debunk. We live on the New Madrid fault line, which is really active, but with small, small 2.0-ish earthquakes. Except for the fact that A through P fell out one by one. Nope. No explanation on that one. Yeah. Nothing scientific on that one. Number four. He's still going. This is a great email. The kid who played in my room at night. Okay, you're kind of burying the lead here. This I don't remember, but my dad remembers me telling him. When I was just old enough to talk decently, he said I would always complain about the kid that wanted to play at night. My mom would just think it was me making excuses not to sleep. My dad, however, who had the same room as a child, knew exactly what I was talking about since he remembered as a kid having encounters with a kid that wanted to play at night. Holy fuck, Grant. Burying the lead, buddy. Number five. The cold spot in the floor. My grandfather and grandmother both passed away in that house. When my grandfather died, there was always a cold spot, cold spot in the floor near the oven. This spot, just slightly to the right of the oven, not where you would stand while cooking, would always be the first to peel and break when the floor was replaced. My mom got tired of repairing it and just threw a rug over it. Nope, no explanation. Number six. The man at the window. My mom would get up at night to check the weather during the winter. One night, my dad got up, went to get a drink, came back to bed, saw my mom peering out the window with the curtain pulled back. He climbed into bed, only to see that my mom was still in bed, asleep. He looked at the window, and the figure was gone. Heh, that's creepy. Uh, number seven. Tickle your foot and blow in your ear. Kurt here, no thank you. As a teenager, I would nap on the couch a lot. I always had to cover my feet because something would tickle them. Just slightly. I always thought it was my imagination. One night, something blew into my ear as, as, we slept, as I slept on the couch. Woke me up out of a dead sleep. Nothing around. I mentioned to my dad, and he laughed and said, Ha, ah, your grandpa used to do that. Well, there, there you go. Uh, number, number eight, the red jacket. Over the summer, during my senior year, my girlfriend would come over and go swimming. Afterwards, she would take a shower, then come down to my room, change, etc. I kept my door closed as a teenager, and I was open to the door as she, came, as she was coming in, and saw someone walk behind her. I was freaking out. She was only wearing a towel. I asked her what did she think she was doing wearing a towel around when my dad was home. We were alone, she said. No, someone was home. I saw a black-headed man wearing a red flannel shirt walk past you as you walked into the room. Sure enough, he was at work. I told my dad about this as soon as we got home, and he smiled and said, a red, a red flannel shirt? Could it have been a jacket? And goes back to the closet in the laundry room and pulls out a red and black flannel jacket that belonged to my grandfather. Number nine, the man in the room. I vividly remember seeing a man's figure walk in my room and stop at the foot of my bed. The figure was kind of static. I would chalk this up to sleep paralysis, but I hadn't been to sleep yet. I'm glad you threw that last part in. Number 10, lost and found. 
Over the course of living at my parents' house growing up, things would go missing. Then just randomly show up in the open. A fishing pole vanished and reappeared on my deck. My, gra my brass compass went missing out of my bag and I found it on the fireplace mantle. Countless things like this happened. Countless things like this have happened. I moved to my current house about nine years ago and every single place I live, this happens. I jokingly refer to it as Walter and now I'm missing my watch that my wife bought me for our first anniversary that I kept in a sock drawer so it wouldn't get damaged. I hope Walter finds that for me. And guess what? We actually have an updated part to this email. Updated. My watch has turned up. It showed up on my nightstand under a piece of paper that I sat on there days after last looking for the watch. Creepy. Uh, he goes on to say, I'm sure there are more instances of the hauntings, but I can't recall any. I'm still skeptical of saying it's a ghost, but I really can't debunk some of these items on this list. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff on this list that can't be debunked. Are you kidding me? It's amazing. First, thank you for listening and for sending this. And and B, yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's paranormal. Okay, this next one comes from a very nice listener that I'm sure I'm going to butcher your name, and I apologize. I'm going to say your name is Maroon? Maron? M-A-R-O-U-N. I suck. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, she says, we had migrated from Lebanon to Australia when I was one year old. When I was one year old. We had gone to a festival in 2004. I would have been about four at the time. Unfortunately, I can't remember the festival's name. During the festival, we were walking around enjoying the food, music, and the games. It was in the middle of the day when this lady had approached us and kept following us until we were alone. Oh, I think Maroon's a boy. I'm sorry, a guy. Hold on. I, I might have to apologize in a second. Um, I'm going to keep going with this story, but I think... I think Maroon's a guy. Yes. I'm sorry, Maroon. See? Now I screwed up your name and I called you a woman. I'm butchering this one. I apologize. If it wasn't live, I would go back and edit this out. But it's fine. So where were we? Um, the, during the festival, we were walking around enjoying the food, music, and the games. It was in the middle of the day when this lady had approached us and kept following us until we were alone. She kept trying to make contact with me. After a few failed attempts, my auntie eventually told her... Why do you keep following us, and why do you keep trying to make contact with him? Him. He's a guy. Sorry. The lady did not respond. She had simply ignored her. My auntie proceeded to ask the same questions. Eventually, the lady said, I was here for the boy, and I'm not willing to talk to anyone but the boy. My auntie, being a protective woman, she said no, and said, you can talk to me or my husband. The lady said no. My auntie, after a few minutes, told the lady that she can talk to me. This lady proceeded to look into my past, present, and future. Most of the things she had mentioned has come true, such as my parents' divorce My parents' divorce when I was around five years old. Here's the catch. The lady had no features that stood out. She was dressed in all black with a black veil. She had this super floral but sweet scent. As soon as she finished telling me what was going to happen, she vanished. Both my auntie and uncle can confirm, can confirm and attest to this event as it continues to puzzle us all. Well, yeah. So... Did this lady in black say, mention anything about a podcast guy that was going to butcher every part of your story? Because uh, if she did, that's impressive because I didn't even know I was going to do that until I started talking. So again, very cool story. Um, don't you wish you would have asked more questions to the creepy lady in black, all in black that disappeared for you? Um, I would have, I don't know if I would have listened to her enough to remember anything. I think I would have been like, okay, crazy person, please leave me alone only to have her turn out to be true, and that sucks. Uh, well, I hope you got some good stuff going on in the future. 
And I hope that future contains listening to Paranormal Almanac because I apologize for butchering, butchering this entire story. Thank you, sir. Okay. A while back, listener Andy sent me a ghost story about a little ghost girl that I read in a past listener ghost story episode. Well, recently, he sent me the first listener ghost story update. Ooh, I technically, now it's the second one. Since I wrote this, Grant has had an update. Well, they're both the first, because they're both on the same episode. So you guys both get the honor of having the first listener ghost stories updates. <clears throat> okay, here's a very real quick recap from his parents' house from the last past listener ghost story episode. He says, so as I'm passing the stairway to go to my bathroom, I look up at the top of the stairs, and at the top of the stairs is a little girl. At the time, it really didn't think... At the time, I really didn't think much of it because my stepsister's, my stepsister's room was upstairs. Till I started going number one, then realized my stepmom and stepsister had left to go to the store. Then kind of playing it back in my head, I noticed the odd clothing. The girl had a black dress with pleats on, with a white blouse and ruffles, cuffs, and her shoes had fucking buckle, fucking buckles, fucking buckles on them. I can't remember what her face looked like exactly, but I remember long hair. I got out of the bathroom, stepped, stopped, looked at the top of the stairs again, and the step to the doorway to the living room, and, yeah, to the door of the living room, and I asked my dad, did my stepmom and stepsister leave? He said yes, like a half hour ago. Why? I told him exactly what had happened and proceeded to tell me that a week before that he had heard a child's footsteps run from my stepsister's room to his room and slam his bedroom door shut. So right there, he confirmed what I saw. Okay, here's the update. Little update. I'm at my dad's house and my brother stopped to see the new truck my dad just got. My brother got to the house before we did and he went to use the bathroom and waiting at the top of the stairs was the little girl. He turned around and walked out of the house without using the bathroom. And if that wasn't cool enough, here is another one from Andy. So, like I bragged about before, I could potentially fill one of your shows. I'm beginning to believe you, Andy. A lot of these things happen to me or other families or other members of my family. First things first, as a kid to a young adult, I'd sometimes have nightmares or dreams that would be reoccurring or very distinct in my memory. I remember one vividly of me going to a place that had a long driveway and it was in the woods and it was very dark out. This dream kept repeating for years until one month or so it happened to me at the very happened at the very least two times a week, the same dream repeating. Till it stopped abruptly, and the very next day I had a party I was invited to after a play. I was at stage crew. I was in stage crew. And it got out late it got out late, so I went to this party, and the craziest part was it was the exact same place from my dream. The exact same place and everything, to a T like my dream. Now, like I said, it happened way more frequently than it does now, but it still happens. Also, there are things it does attract that are not fun, like shadow people, which I don't believe are all which I don't believe all are ghosts, especially these ones, because I'm very sensitive to these things too. And I know when there is an evil energy and well, I know when there is an evil energy around, and I've had to tell these things to leave. This all sounds really fucking crazy, I know, but when I finally approach my mom about it, she says I know. I've, I've known you've had that gift for a while. Your grandpa had it too. I was fucking shocked and found out that my, my mother and sister also have the same type of thing. I guess that's why out of my family members, I'm the only one that saw the ghost at the top of the stairs at my dad's house. Now you're probably like, well, okay, if your sister has it and lives at your dad's house, why hasn't she seen anything? Good question, Andy. Well, 
Well, we have different strengths in our abilities, and I also don't think it cares to show itself to her because it comes in her room every night and bothers her or waits at the hall at the bottom of the stairs, moving around and keeping her up. I could go on and on about the ghost part, but I don't. But I do want to get on with what I thought might be a Bigfoot and another UFO sighting. All right, I was going to cut these up, you know, like purse them out, like one to the Halloween episode and one to the UFO episode, but I'm going to throw them all in right here for you guys. A whole lot of Andy coming at you. The UFO sighting happened shortly after my last email I sent. It was about 10.30 p.m. and I was heading to work from home, heading north on Salt Road in Webster. I looked off to the west and I noticed what I thought was a plane coming in for a landing in Rochester. Well, I noticed a problem with it that it was too high to be coming in and then noticed that its speed was too fast for a landing. It was in the clouds and it was moving faster than most commercial planes. Then I noticed that there was no marker light, no blinking of any sort, and it was a solid white color. Now at this point... I'm like, that's funny, but then it got me, but then it got behind some cloud cover, and I was like, damn, there it goes. But just after that, just after that got through my head, the thing had done a 180, started heading south almost at double the speed, then I lost it behind some trees, and it was gone. I know that was a really bad reading of your email, I apologize, but that's a very, very cool UFO story. Up next... Bigfoot time. Okay, Bigfoot time. So about two years ago, my brother and I got out of work around midnight and thought, why not go fishing? Well, there's a creek down the road that met the Genesee River called Black Creek. Well, we were there for about an hour fishing and nothing happened. Then we heard on the other side of the creek, heavy footsteps. Now, slight background, my brother and I are old Boy Scouts and have been camping enough to know what, no, that wasn't a fucking deer. It was way too loud and it sounded like it wanted to be heard. Well, we hung out for a bit longer, then we heard a giant branch come crashing down a giant branch come crashing down. Then a lot more movement, which abruptly stopped. My brother and I looked at each other and he said to me, well, that's fucking weird. My reply was, yeah, let's get out of here. We reeled in our lines, packed up as fast as we could and got the heck out of there. Sorry for how long this one is, but I got to say there is still a lot more. Hell, some of the guys at work say I'm haunted, but I enjoy it a little. Wow. Yeah, that's a whole lot of paranormal. Save some paranormal for the rest of us, Andy. Jesus. Uh, no, I loved them. They were fantastic. As always, please send me more. These are great stories, Andy. I appreciate them. <sighs> okay, up next from Jared. The best I can tell, there seems to be a direct correlation between sleep paralysis and lucid dreaming. I kind of agree with that. I didn't have the happiest upbringing, and one thing that made me feel better was that there was a complete escape was to lucid dream. One thing that was uh, made me feel better, and that was a complete escape, was to lucid dream. Okay. Which I could do it almost at will most of the time. I had been actively lucid dreaming for a couple of years, then the paralysis started. At first, each one of my body parts felt like they weighed a thousand pounds apiece, then I realized I couldn't move. At first, it was cool because the lucid dreaming came, the, came even easier for me during that state. I could not move, could not talk, and had a 50-50 of being able to close my eyes. Now, I never saw shadow people, but I did always hear voices, even to this day. At first, it was jumbled, like a bunch of uh, drunks trying to speak over each other at a bar. But as time went by, I started singling out voices. I didn't think much of it, as it always had some pretty crazy dreams in this state. The bad thing about maybe being able to close your eyes or not is that you would still, I would still dream. It was just projected into my room, and may God help you if it's a nightmare. Huh, can't even imagine. Uh, it goes on to say, It's why I still only sleep about three hours a night, but I digress. Back to the voices. As I said before, I didn't think much about it first, but then the voices started to get very specific. 
like hearing a child giggle saying, you sleep funny, which is odd because I have a particularly strange way I sleep due, a due to a chronic spinal condition. So you got ghost children voices. That's awesome. I hate those. Um, he goes on to say, or the weirdest one is when I saw a silhouette outside my bedroom window and heard a woman's voice softly sob, can you hear me? I didn't think too much of it as it happened all the time, but then when I laid back down, sleep when I laid back down, paralysis sat in again immediately and she was there again, only sounding more urgent. This happened about four times that night, the last time she was screaming, please. It bothered me deeply, and I just settled for about an hour of sleep that night. Anyway, it's kind of normal for me at this point, and doesn't bother me as much anymore. Well, Jared, um, I'm sorry that you have to deal with the little ghost kids, because they're always creepy. That woman, if you can, and I don't know if it would turn into lucid dreaming if you can, but uh, it'd be cool to ask her questions like, what do you need? How can I help you? What's your name? Where are you from? You know, find out specific things about her. See if you can corroborate any of this with someone who actually lived or, yeah, someone who actually lived around your area that has passed away. I think it'd be very cool. Something to think about. Love the email. Thank you so much. All right, while I catch my breath, quick shout out to Toby and also to a band called Abandon the Ship. Thank you guys so much for listening. <clears throat> okay, this next one is from listener Oscar. When my mom was pregnant with me before she knew what she was having, her friends threw a baby shower for her that went normally like any baby shower till the night came. Her friends that stayed brought out a Ouija board and told her that they were going to play. My mom didn't want to though and she told them, don't ask anything about my baby and then left the room. They didn't listen, though. They asked what she was going to have, and the pointer moved to boy, then mine. Freaking out, they told her what it said, that she was having, that she'd have a boy, and it would be, and who it would, and it would belong to it. Now, my mom was so, oh, Jesus, now I just read, I just figured out what you meant. Freaking out that they told her what it had said, that she'd have a boy, and it would belong to it. Oh, that's creepy. Now, my mom was pissed, so she grabbed the Ouija board and threw it in the kitchen trash can. As they all settled back down, they heard a pop in the kitchen. When they got back to the kitchen, they saw that the light bulb burst and caught the trash can and uh, caught the trash can on fire, burning everything in the trash except the Ouija board. Months later, she had a boy, me, not me, Kurt, me, the author, listener, uh, Oscar. Uh, she had a boy, me. And when I hit about five, strange things started happening. I would see things and have terrible sleep paralysis of a shadow figure holding me down, and I could always tell it when it was, I could always tell when it was gonna happen because it seemed like the silence was loud before the shadow came in. If that makes any sense, Kurt here. Um, I've heard that from quite a few people that have sleep paralysis that all of a sudden the silence becomes deafening before the sleep paralysis weird shit starts kicking in. The sleep paralysis would happen every year, and eventually I got used to it. Once I was in my late teens, it got worse. The night would hit, and I'd fear sleeping. I'd fear seeing the shadow. I'd, I'd fear. Oh, I'd fear seeing the shadow man, darker than the darkness of the night, because he wouldn't just hold me down anymore. Now I could hear him whispering low and fast, never able to make out what he was saying except for the word "mine," as I felt if. As I felt as if his thing was trying to take control. Oh, as if, ah, as I felt as if this thing was trying to take control. I get what you're saying. Oof, that's creepy. That's a whole lot of creepy packed into one story. Uh, Oscar, thank you for that. I really hope that uh, this evil shadow man dude 
knocks that shit off. Um, I don't know how to... I see, I wish I could help you guys. I wish I could doctor fill this shit away and be like, well, just talk to the shadow man and maybe he'll go away. He doesn't need to stay. I don't know what to say, you guys, other than these are great stories. Okay, up next from the always awesome Amber. Okay, here goes. Growing up, I was raised that anything paranormal was evil. As an adult, I realized that it was not taboo to realize we're not alone. About seven years ago, I was sitting on my couch when the dining room light switch, which I could clearly see, switched on by itself. The same night, my boys, ages three and four at the time, shortly after awoke screaming. When I rushed, when I rushed, when I rushed to their room, I found them hovering in the corner of their room, pointing at the quote. Oh God! When I rushed to their room, I found them hovering in the corner, pointing at the. Oh, I gotta read this correctly. I'm sorry, Amber. When I rushed to their room, I found them hovering in the corner of their room, pointing at the, quote, dark man with red eyes. When I tried to calm them, my boys cried because, quote, he was laughing at us. They had nightmares for days, and I encountered an infestation of spiders over the next few days, which I realize is cliche, but it happened. We, we moved promptly after only for the kids to say he didn't go away, and it took another house and a couple blessings later... To stop their nightmares. This was really traumatic for us and hard to move past, but we did. I'm not sure what the curse was at the time, but it got us. We have moved past it, but it's still an experience we will never forget. Holy crap, Amo, that's just insane. A dark man with red eyes. At the beginning of this episode, I've got an episode about a guy with red eyes. That's crazy cool. Okay, up next from listener Sean. Unfortunately, I was only tangentially involved in this, but it's a great story and I completely believe that it's true. It happened in early summer of 1987 or 1988 in the tiny town of Pickens, West Virginia. I was 11 or 12 and was spending an evening visiting my aunt. It was a few weeks after Decoration Day, a local event shortly after Memorial Day, when everyone in town and the surrounding areas gathers at the cemetery and puts flowers on the graves for their family members. Just after dark, her oldest son came in the house when he looked extremely scared. He was pale, shaking, and his eyes were huge and shocked looking. Once we got him calmed down a little, he told us that he had stopped by the local cemetery on his way to work. We had heard that the cemetery groundskeeper had been throwing out flowers, so he stopped to make sure things were still in place. It was nearly dusk, and we stopped, and when he stopped, it was nearly dusk when he stopped, and the grave he was checking on were on the downhill side of the cemetery near the fence that borders it from the surrounding forest. After checking on the graves, he was taking a moment to pay his respects, so when he looked up, he saw a shape standing just on the other side of the fence in the trees looking at him. Unfortunately, due to it being twilight, it wasn't super clear, and he saw mostly its silhouette, but he described it as seven to eight feet tall, covered in dark brown or black fur with long arms that nearly reached to the ground and bright, glowing red eyes. He said they stood there looking at each other for a few seconds, then it started moving out of the trees towards the fence between them. At this point, he lost his courage and ran back to his truck without looking back and drove straight to my aunt's house. Of course, our first thought was that it was a bear, but he quickly said it was definitely not a bear. He is an accomplished hunter, would definitely have known a bear if he saw one. So at that point, we're at a loss for what it could have been. Furthermore, a few days later, another person from town said they were driving to the cemetery shortly after my cousin left, and a large black furry shape ran across the road in front of their car on two legs. 
Eventually, we came to the conclusion that it might have been a Bigfoot, although given that it was rural West Virginia and it had glowing red eyes, I have suspected perhaps that it was Mothman if the arms were instead wings reaching to the ground. Either way, my cousin and the guy who saw it cross the road were the only two sightings we have ever heard in the area, although we'd hear the occasional rumor of someone seeing Bigfoot in a neighboring town or something. I hope you find the story as interesting as I do. Kurt here, yes I do. I've never doubted what he saw just to the do, just, just due to the sheer terror he was in when he first came in my aunt's house. What an awesome story. Thank you so much, Sean. And that about does it for the listener ghost story part of this episode. But fear not, there is a whole lot more episode coming in just a moment. After these messages, we'll be right back. Six million dollar man, ready to operate and command. Colonel Steve Austin is the six million dollar man. Complete with the technology to replace his bionic modules. Check him out with the bionic transport and repair station. Control his amazing lifting strength. See through his wide-angle bionic eye. The man, his bionic transport that becomes a repair station and a working backpack radio. There's a new cereal in the neighborhood with owls and ghosts. Tastes real good. Ghostbusters. Marshmallow ghosts. Fruit-flavored O's. Ghostbusters taste great with milk and juice and toast. A nutritious breakfast with the ghosts. Ghostbusters. Fruit-flavored O's. Ghostbusters. Marshmallow ghosts. Ghostbusters. What are you going to crunch? Come along, R2. Don't be so silly. You can't possibly be getting whooping cough. Droids don't get diseases like whooping cough or measles or polio. But children do. If a young child gets whooping cough, it can lead to pneumonia, brain damage, even death. All you need is a little rewiring. But children need to be fully immunized. And alas, so many are not. All right, R2, I'll ask them. Parents of Earth, are your children fully immunized against childhood diseases? Call your doctor or local health department and find out. Immunize your children, please. And may the force be with you. Send for the Parent's Guide to Childhood Immunization. It's yours free. Write Immunization, Pueblo, Colorado, 81009. And we are back. I hope you enjoyed those little commercials. Let's take a quick look at some time machines. Let's get right into it. We are, I don't know how long into this episode, two hours, three hours, whatever it is. Uh, but it seems like I've been talking forever. So let's get right into this one. Oh, I forgot to put my headphones back on after this break. What am I doing? I'm losing my mind. Okay, so... Let's take a quick look at time machines. This is another one of those most requested topics, if you will. Everyone wants to know about the future or visit slash fix the past. But as of right now, there really isn't a lot of proof of time travel. There's a lot of guys that say they have built some time machines that sound like they might work, but no real proof. And this is another one of those kind of things. I'm sure when I say the word time machine, you think of some cool car, some mechanical equipment, or maybe even a blue telephone booth. But how about a tomb? Yeah, that's right. I said tomb. There are a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people, 
that think a London tomb is really a time machine or, at the very least, a teleportation chamber. Now, it's located in London's Brompton Cemetery, and I think I've already said something wrong. So let me double-check the Brompton part of Brompton Cemetery right now. Oh, no, I didn't say I said it right. Brompton Cemetery is a London cemetery in the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. Okay. See, I'm not losing it too much. But anyhow, there is this tomb in London's Brompton Cemetery, and it's the final resting place of Hannah Courtoy and her two daughters, who, according to some websites, had a vast knowledge of Egyptians' astrological signs or symbols. Not really. I'll get to that more in a minute. It's a huge mausoleum that slightly resembles the, the TARDIS, actually. It really kind of does look like the TARDIS. It's 20-foot-tall granite mausoleum. It has a pyramid top, a bronze door decorated with hieroglyphics. And when she was alive, Hannah Courtois began a friendship. They always put that in quotes, so you know what that means. Has a friendship with Egyptologist Joseph Bonamy, or Bonamai, or Bone Me, I don't know, don't care, he's dead, who dazzled her, quote-unquote, with stories of Egyptian practices, iconography, and astrology. When she died in 1849, he was the one that built her mausoleum. Then when he died, his tombstone had a drawing of an Egyptian god that seemed to point towards Hannah's mausoleum, in that whole, like, Dan Brown Da Vinci Code kind of way. Alrighty, so let's now jump to 1998, when the Associated Press wrote a story about the tomb and its odd hieroglyphics, and somehow, they say they found evidence that a friend of Bonamy, Samuel Alfred Warner, claimed to have built a time machine and wanted it hidden in a cemetery so it wouldn't attract attention. Here's where a little research matters, though, because that AP story says that... Those two men, Samuel and Joseph, convinced an ailing Hannah that they could build a time machine and used her money to do it, and they built this mausoleum. Which seems weird, because why build a mausoleum at all? Why not just take her money, say you're building something? Other websites think that they used that they did use Hannah's money. That They all seem to kind of agree on that. And actually built a teleportation chamber, or five. Why five? No idea. Couldn't find anything that's, that concretely proved that there are five teleportation chambers. Four other ones that connect to this. Nothing. Despite a lot of half-assed shit on websites that say, oh, and one of the five is in the famous Paris uh, uh, cemetery, the one that uh, Jim Morrison is in. I mean, it's a lot of bullshit. It's a lot of pull. You know, you pull at a thread and it just kind of crumbles. But the proof or the truth of this does seem to do... That there is a mausoleum, that part's true. Does have a bunch of weird hieroglyphics, that part's true. Uh, Joseph Bonamese does have a drawing of an Egyptian god on his headstone. That part is all true. And that's about it. So, these five teleportation chambers were designed by Joseph Bonamy and built, Bonamy, and built by his occult partner, the inventor Samuel Alfred Warner. And that's all we really, they think we really know. I don't even think we know that much, to be honest with you. But I can say this. In 2015, a descendant of Hannah's, Roy Godson, said, Hey, you know what? 
I am willing to open that mausoleum because they can't find the key. A lot of those mausoleums that are, you know, hundreds of years old, they lose the keys. That is not odd. That is not strange at all. That is not part of this conspiracy theory bullshit. They just lost the key. But Roy Godson, her descendant, said he was willing to open the mausoleum, but I can't find if it ever happened. I don't think it did, though. Everywhere I look, I don't think it did. Now, here's my problem with this story. Well, I, I've already told you many of them. It's this whole one website says, oh, there's five five mausoleums that are all parted. They're all connected to these teleportation chambers. And then they don't give any proof, like not even a little bit of proof. Like they all look the same. They all have the same symbols. Nope. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Trying to find this information out about this uh, tomb just leads you to the same story again and again and again and again of people regurgitating bullshit. So take this one with a huge grain of salt. But if you live in London, definitely go check it out. It looks cool as hell. This mausoleum is bitchin' looking. Go check it out. You know, start buying up a bunch of old ass skeleton keys. See if you can open up the mausoleum and see what's inside. Hint, it's going to be Hannah and her two daughters. But, you know... Maybe something else cool will be in there. For now, I'm going to try and find out how I can contact Roy Godson to try and see if maybe I can get that tomb open with him. Because I like to scratch this one off or prove it's right and teleport over to uh, Paris. I've never been to Paris. It could be a whole European vacation just done with teleportation chambers and mausoleums. Sounds cool to me. Alrighty, now let's talk about a couple more international cryptids. Just a couple. The first one is from New Guinea. It's the New Guinean Iguanodon, or the Papuan? Sure. Papua New Guinea, Papau, Papuan Iguanodon. I like the New Guinean one. I can say it better. It's a dinosaur-like cryptid that has been recently reported, and it's been around for a long time, but it's recently been seen. It lurks in the rainforest near the, gonna get this one wrong, Tinga Navadu, Tinga Navudu, Tinga Navudu village of Papua New Guinea. Boom, got it. And it's seen every few years. Like on December 11th, 1999, the independent newspaper of Papua New Guinea reported that a dinosaur-like reptile was seen on two occasions in the Lake Murray area, and that's in the western province. Villagers traveling in a canoe reported seeing a large animal wading in shallow waters near Baboa. The following day, a Seventh-day Adventist... Seventh-day Adventist pastor and a church elder said that they saw the animal not far from the first sighting. The creature was described as having a body as long as a dump truck, which, that's a weird way of describing it. Unless there's a dump truck in your line of sight while someone's saying, hey, how big was that? Why the hell are you picking a dump truck? You couldn't pick, it's just a regular truck? or You know, that's just a dumb one. But anyhow... Creature was described as having a body as long as a dump truck and as wide as nearly two meters. That's seven feet for you and I. It sported a long neck and a long slender tail, and it was walking on two hind legs, quote, as thick as coconut palm tree trunks, with two smaller forelegs in front, or arms as I would call them. The head was similar in shape to a cow's head, with large eyes and sharp teeth as long as fingers. The skin was likened to that of a crocodile, and the creature had, quote, Largest triangular scoops on its back. Sounds like a dinosaur to me. Sounds like these people are describing a dinosaur while using the dump truck as a reference. 
Then, next, in March of 2004, near Rabal, in a marsh outside of the Cocopo? Sure. When the Iguanodon was spotted yet again. This eyewitness said they saw a three-meter-tall, gray-colored creature with a head like a dog and a tail like a crocodile. Now, here's a piece from a newspaper article about that specific sighting. A police hunting party has gone in search of a mysterious dinosaur-like creature after reported sightings in the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Villagers in the volcanic island province of East New Britain said they fled in terror after seeing a three-meter-tall, gray-colored beast with a head like a dog and the tail of a crocodile. Hey, I've heard that before. An eyewitness, Christine Same, told reporters that she had run for her life after stumbling across the animal, which she said was as fat as a 900-liter water tank. Man, you guys have weird ways of describing shit. I heard the people talking about it, and I went there to see it for myself. It's very ugly, very huge. It's a very huge and ugly-looking animal, is what she said. A government official said the local villagers had identified the creature from books and movies about dinosaurs. They told us it was a dinosaur, said one official. The creature is also said to have eaten three dogs. In any case, six police officers armed with M16 rifles and villagers carrying bush knives searched the area but came up empty-handed. Then, in 2011, according to the account published by the Australian newspaper The Sydney Morning Herald, villagers from the province of East New Britain fled terror-stricken after encountering a 10-foot-tall creature that was gray, had a head shaped like a dog, and a long tail like a crocodile. The badly shaken natives who encountered the frightening beast told the police the creature seemed to be inhabiting a dense marsh near the capital. So, listeners, if you're in Papua New Guinea and you're listening to this, please go get me an iguanodon. You know, I don't want to see it killing a bunch of dogs. That's, that's not cool. But... Get me a photo or a video of said iguanodon. I want to see it. Okay, and another international cryptid is called the Shuswagi. It lives in the Shuswap Lake in British Columbia, Canada. Sighting started in 1904 by a First Nations hunter who claimed to have killed and skinned a strange creature in the Shuswap Lake. Way to kill a rare creature, Dick. The uh, hide was reportedly taken to the nearby trading post in Enderby, where it was sold for $60, that's over $2,000, in 2019 inflation times. It was said to be furry, as large as a grizzly bear, with 12-inch long feet resembling an aquatic mole. The Shuswagi has been described in various ways, ranging from a large furry mammal resembling a bear to a lengthy gray-black aquatic creature similar to a giant eel. Hey, giant eel! That sounds familiar. Now, the next recorded sighting was not until 1948, when a man fishing on the Shuswap Lake claimed a massive creature swam under his boat, clipping the bottom and nearly capsizing it. Then, in 1970, a family hosting a birthday party near the Shuswap Lake reported seeing a long, gray-green object moving under the lake water that appeared to move quickly before rising out of the, wa rising out of the water, turning around, and heading away. Then, in 1984, the most well-known sighting occurred. Linda Griffiths and her children were out on the lake when she reported grabbing her binoculars and watching the large, quote, serpent-like creature swim in front of the boat. Then, just five months ago, 2019, five months ago, the Shuswagi might have been caught on film by two fishermen. On a recent fishing trip to Murdoch Point near Sycamus, Brody Blair 
and Les Lauren spotted waves coming from an unexplained source, disturbing the, quote, otherwise clear waters of the Shuswap Lake. Keep on to call it a river. The Shuswap Lake. The pair said, with no other boats on the water, the wave circled 180 degrees around theirs, 180 degrees around theirs, with what appeared to be black humps rising from the top of them periodically. They estimated the source of the waves reached 200 yards from them at the closest. Now, I'm going to put a link to their video on the Facebook page. So, look, you guys got a lot of videos to watch, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you will in a little bit. But here is yet another video that I'm going to throw up on the Facebook page. Alrighty, let's move on from a cryptid to another UFO near a nuclear site. But take this one with a huge grain of salt. Here is another story of UFOs near nuclear sites that are coming from 2010, but the sighting was actually much, much earlier. So the report came from 2010. The sightings themselves, much earlier. An unnamed officer working at the Cooper Nuclear Station near Brownville, Nebraska, according to the files released by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the incident was described as, quote, an unidentified flying object violating the protected area at the station. So, according to the documents, the report was only received by the former employee in 2010. The report said an unidentified flying object violated the protected area at Cooper Nuclear Station between 1986 and 1989, but the event was not reported as required. The confidential informant described an event that occurred during his employment as a security officer. He says he was employed there from 86 through 89 and did not remember specifically when during that time the event occurred. Look, I get, was it 2004? Was it 2005? I can get that. But was it 1986 or was it 1989? Look, I worked there for three years, was somewhere in that three years. That's a little sketchy to me. He saw a UFO. He should roughly remember the year. Anyhow, while posted at the intake structure one night, he observed an unidentified flying object fly down the Missouri River about 100 feet in the air and hover in front of the intake. He observed it for a few moments and then contacted a fellow security officer who also observed it. It said that they watched it together, the object went back up the river, and... Colleagues that didn't see it just didn't believe these guys when they, when they told them about it. It said the following evening, the officer saw that UFO return. This time, though, he didn't tell anybody until it came into the protected area and hovered just north of the reactor building. The man described it as triangular in shape with a rotating circle of lights on the bottom. If you guys uh, listened to one of my episodes, I don't remember which one, anyone, someone, one of the previous episodes, I talked about triangular UFOs. This sounds exactly like that. So he also said it was uh, silent and the third the size of a reactor building. So a good size. He says he called the security room and most of the officers reportedly saw it as well. The report added these individuals included a bunch of names, all of whom which still work at the plant today. So those names were redacted on the, uh, on the report itself. They say... After hovering there for a few minutes, the UFO exited the protected area and returned back up the river to the north as it, as it did the previous night. He said he never saw the UFO at the plant again after that evening. Now, there's the reason I said that take this one with a grain of salt is the lack of details, 
the lack of actual reports that were done at the time, that should have been done at that time, especially the second instance where a lot of his quote-unquote colleagues saw the same damn thing, yet nobody reported it officially? This is a nuclear reactor. Who gives a shit? You say, hey, I saw something flying over the nuclear reactor. Here are the 20 men who saw it as well. Those 20 men do that same report on their dime as well. The fact that there was nobody... The fact that he was the only one who seemed to care, and just because he got a little ridiculed the first time, he was like, well, I'm not going to say anything the next time. No, suck it up, say it every time. It's just those details, those kind of things that it doesn't seem like... I know like the military isn't as cool and precise as I like to think it is, but... It seems to me that this guy should have been a little bit tougher with, hey, no, there's a UFO a third the size of the building over the building. You know that building that has a nuclear reactor in it? Maybe, just maybe, we should stop that. But, you know, again, that's just me. I'd like to think our military is better than that. Okay, next let's talk about some more Haunted Hollywood locations. Just a couple of them, though. Mainly because I got to hear a really cool ghost story in a classic Hollywood location just last week, and I can't wait to tell you guys about it. But before we get to that story, let's talk about Thelma Todd. You guys know who she is? No? Cool. Me neither. Had to look her up. She was a, quote, very popular 1930s actress who starred alongside Marx Brothers and Buster Keaton. So... Top-notch comedy movies, basically. Then, she opened up her own restaurant, Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe. And guess what? That's where her ghost is often seen till today. Apparently, the starlet... Not apparently, I looked it up, it's true. The starlet passed away in 1935 to carbon monoxide poisoning, so that sucks. But, her ghost is seen at her cafe, usually casually descending the stairs. Next one isn't really a celebrity, but he started The Hollywood Reporter and um, still walks the halls today, so it kind of fits into this part of the category, in this part of the episode, I should say. His name was William Billy Wilkerson, and in 1936, he opened the offices for his newspaper, The Hollywood Reporter, on Sunset Boulevard. Now, he died in 1962, but his ghost has been seen wandering the offices of The Hollywood Reporter to this day. Now, the Hollywood Reporter moved to a larger quarters in 1992 and the LA Weekly bought the space. But before they moved in, they basically just emptied it out. They cleared out the whole inside. They completely redid it. So they had a construction worker named Jerry Brake who was working on the building's seismic upgrading. Everything was demolished except for Wilkerson's old office upstairs, which was being used as the construction office during the construction. Brake was often in the offices alone at night when he said he would often see someone walk by his office out of the corner of his eye, but dismissed it after seeing it so many times and chasing after it only to find there was nobody there. He's like, ah, oh, it just must be, I'm tired or whatever. Then, one night, he felt something tap him on the back, and when he turned around, there was nobody there. He said he stepped out of the office, looked down the hall, looked down the other way, absolutely nothing. He says he then walked past a room to the left of his office and saw a figure in the corner. He looked past it to a mirror that stood in front of both of them, 
but Brake only saw his reflection. He says he looked back at the figure, and it was gone. A few days later, at 5.30 a.m., Brake was alone when he heard a noise and followed it the length of the front hall towards the stairs. He clearly heard the footsteps walking in front of him the entire time. Brake ran after the footsteps, as when he came around the corner, he said he could almost see a figure, but the lighting was bad. He checked the whole building, and he was alone. So this guy's brave. I'll give him credit. Like, one, yeah, could be could be just me. Could be just tired. Two, huh, something there. Three, someone taps me. What the hell? Four, I'm chasing something. What the hell? Five, I see something. No, this guy's brave. I'll give him some serious credit. But that's not the end of the story. So, as the remodeling progressed, even the grand staircase was removed, leaving the elevator as the only access to the second floor. Late one night, architect Ted Powell was in Wilkerson's office with the woman from the LA Weekly. They were alone in the building when they heard what sounded like a broom handle on a ceiling directly under them. So basically, on the floor. They heard a broom, but you know what I mean. Had to, I had to say it that way. A broom handle on the ceiling directly under them. Boom, boom, boom. They took the elevator down but found nobody. Just as they were saying, okay, it was obviously nothing. You heard it, I heard it. They started to hear footsteps above them in Wilkerson's office, the office that they were just in, and there is no way for anybody to get up there because there's no more staircase. They were in the only elevator that can get them between floors. So, rightfully so, they said, fuck it, and they left. I don't blame them either. Okay, screw it. Let's get to why I wanted to add these to this episode. This isn't just the 100th episode of Paranormal Almanac. It's also the 100th anniversary of Musso and Franks, which you might remember from an earlier episode about haunted Hollywood locations. It's a very haunted, very, very cool restaurant. Charlie Chaplin's ghost is seen there in his favorite window side booth all the time. If you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this is the restaurant, this is the bar, the you know, with all the nice ornate wood and everything that they're in when they meet um, Al Pacino. This is where they shot it. They, it's still open. It's still seen. You can see the um, the neon in the neon scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love Musso and Franks. It's just down the street from where I work. I freaking love it. Well, anyhow, I was lucky enough to attend the press event for Musso and Franks' 100th anniversary party. Walked in, got to walk down each aisle and take some really cool photos of some very vintage stuff. I love old Hollywood, so this was right up my alley. But the owner and his father were there. They were nice enough to chat with me. And I actually asked his father, I was like, can I ask you a really weird question? We're coming up on Halloween. I kind of put it that way so it wouldn't seem so weird. Coming up on Halloween, have you ever seen any ghosts here? There's a lot of rumors this place is haunted. And he just smiled and went, oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. And I said, ooh, can I record you? And he goes, no, you can tell my story, but I don't want to be on record. So anyhow, the owner's dad was telling me that his son, the owner, got there before anyone else. He was the only one in the restaurant. There's this really long, really pretty bar in the uh, in Musso and Frank's. So he gets in, he's walking down the length of the bar, and the blender just goes, and just starts up for no reason. There's no switch or anything. It's literally got to go up and push the button for the blender to turn on, to push the button for the blender to turn off. Nobody else was around. 
And he was like, yeah, okay, that's weird. And then, boom, he says he saw, clear as day, a shadow person. You could see right through him. It was like someone's shadow. Just walk on the other side of the bar where the customers would be. Just walk down, slowly meandering, walk down the entire length of the bar. He said another person that works there, one of the uh, bartenders that's been there forever, that bartender was in there before anybody else again. He was walking in the back room, wherever, storeroom, whatever you want to call it, and a chunk of ice flew past his head. So he quickly closes the door and was about to scream like, what the hell are you doing? You could have killed me throwing a big chunk of ice at me. There's nobody there. That ice didn't fall from the ceiling. It flew at his head from over by where the giant ice machine is. He says, there is no possible way that that ice could have flown at him any other way than somebody throwing it at him. And there was nobody there. He also told me that there is a woman that works there. I won't say her name because he gave it to me in confidence. There's a woman that works there that has had the most amount of paranormal experiences and does not like to talk about it. She doesn't want to think about it. She doesn't want to talk about it. She's a very religious woman and it scares the hell out of her. So for me anyway, when finding out concretely, when, you know, like I always hear these rumors like, oh yeah, Musa and Franks is haunted. But when you talk to somebody who's actually had the experience, who's actually telling you firsthand stories of the experiences, it blows me away. I love it. I love it so much. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that I can get the owner to record something with me. I'll either go there and record him. He can come here, whatever. I would love to have a more in-depth conversation about the hauntings of Musso and Franks. So fingers crossed, that's what I'm hoping. When I did the Men in Black episode, there was one story I didn't include. Not because I didn't want to, but because I wanted it added on this episode. It's about Dan Aykroyd. I don't know if you guys know this, but I'm a huge Ghostbusters fan. I just did an episode of Pods and Monsters podcast. Two friends of mine do that podcast. It's fantastic. They asked me to come on to talk about one of my favorite movies, Ghostbusters. So, Dan Aykroyd. Love him. I think he believes everything just a little bit too much. Things that are actually been debunked and disproven by other people, not just me. He still believes them. But whatever. Good on him. At least he believes something, you know? Anyhow, so Dan Aykroyd was doing a paranormal show called Out There, and they filmed eight episodes. Now, you might be wondering, why haven't I seen this episode, this show, these eight episodes of a show called Out There? Well, according to Dan, during the taping of the final episode, he stepped outside to take a call about being on Saturday Night Live. Britney Spears called him and said, hey, can you come on Saturday Night Live? That's when he noticed some guys in a... in that's when he noticed some guys in black suits standing next to a black sedan. One of the men in black stood outside the car staring at Dan Aykroyd, and another gave Aykroyd an unpleasant glance from the back seat. Now, Dan says that he looked away for a split second. When he looked back, the sedan had disappeared, and he says, and that car did not go past me. It did not take a U-turn. That car vanished. Now... That same day, Dan Aykroyd was called to say that his show was being canceled. He was ordered to stop filming immediately. Not only that, but they would not air any of the eight episodes that they had filmed. Nope, nothing. It was over and done. So, 
Here's a little clip from Dan Aykroyd kind of telling the story I just told on um, in an interview. So take a listen to this. Because she wanted to, me to be, appear on Saturday Night Live with her. And so I picked I was outside having a cigarette. The phone rang. Uh, I, I, oh, Brittany, how you doing? Oh, sure, of course I will. I turned away like this. I turned back and there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. And I, I was trying to look at the plate and the plate seemed kind of like fuzzy. And I was, you know, definitely a police car. And two guys were there and a big, big, tall guy got out of the back seat. And he stood in the street on, um, on 42nd Street it was. We, we were at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue. And he looked right at me. And literally, I mean, I was on the phone. Hey, oh, sure, of course I'd like for the show. Saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back like a half second later, and it was gone. And that car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn because I would have seen 42nd Street. I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go away. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type. Yeah, so there you have it. Dan Aykroyd is convinced that not only was it the men in black, but that they had a cloaked vehicle of some kind just like the movie men in black i guess but i thought it was a really neat interesting uh story uh it's again can't prove it can't disprove it it's dan Aykroyd. he seems to think everything's real but very neat story nonetheless Alrighty, next up more haunted australia because apparently australians love to hear me mess up location names now the first one i think think I can pronounce. It's the Brisbane City Hall in Brisbane, Australia. Nailed it. Now, it has several stories of death spanning the era from before and after its construction. During construction, workmen were said to have died while laying the foundations, which were on top of a former swamp. It is also said that the area was once a significant Aboriginal site, either a meeting place or a campground. Another recorded death was a maintenance man who fell down an open elevator shaft, and guess what? He's still seen there to that day, as well as ghosts of the Aborigines and, quote, old-timey construction workers. Staff there have reported the sounds of an argument from the Red Cross Tea Room, and there are many, many reports of sounds and unusual activities in the area surrounding these deaths. A third story claims the apparition of a woman is regularly seen walking up and down the main stairs in the lobby and a look over the foyer to see her body lying there from an apparent fall she had on the stairs. Next up is the ruins of Port Arthur and countless people have died here. First when it housed hardened criminals as a timber station in convict days. Then sadly when a gunman, which I don't need to give his name, fuck that guy, killed 35 people in 1996. More than 2,000 apparitions have been reported over the last two decades, particularly inside the Reverend George Eastman's house in the penitentiary and in the local hotels nearby. Next up is the Fremantle Prison. Resident ghosts Martha Rendell in the Catholic Chapel and Jack the Library Ghost are often seen here. So they actually know who these ghosts are. Well, at least her. They just call the library ghost Jack for whatever reason. But they know exactly who one of the ghosts are, and apparently she's seen all the time. Nearby is the Fremantle Art Center, which is just down the road. Used to be a psychiatric asylum, and it's said to have had over 10 ghosts that are often seen there. Now, visitors there claim to be touched, 
experience cold spots, and hear banging noises all the time. The touching one is obviously the most compelling part of this for me, but, you know, the rest is cool too, I guess. Uh, next up is the Adelaide Jail. Recently, a tourist came face-to-face -face with the ghost of Governor William Baker Ashton. He died in his quarters, and when they found him, he was already stiff with rigor mortis, so he had to be hoisted down through the window by a rope and pulley system because of his great size. They say the embarrassing exit is probably why he's sticking around. Before that, it had been years since he was last seen. Common behavior for the ghosts are the, the walk in and out of places rather quickly, scaring people, uh, black shadow movements, uh, footsteps, voices, the whole thing. The whole thing. There's a ton of... Uh, there are a ton of accounts of people coming across ghosts and seeing ghosts and hearing ghosts right here at Adelaide Jail as well. Next up is Dreamworld. It's a theme park in Coomera, Queensland. Sure. One building inside the grounds of the theme park where the reality TV series Big Brother Australia is made is haunted. And apparently it's been well known by the people that make the show since its first season in 2001. In fact, production staff say that they have witnessed the presence of a young girl as well as a child's voice and fog appearing late at night and early in the morning. Here's the thing with that, though. That's usually when fog, you know, appears. Fog appears late at night and early in the morning. I'm not saying that fog should be around here, but if it should, that's when it's going to show up. Now, they say that there's also a ghost nicknamed, uh, nicknamed Jack Dark, named after a gold prospector who was claimed to have been killed by a buzzsaw in 1897. And finally for this episode, the Princess Theatre Melbourne has several ghosts. The theater's best-known inhabitant is Frederick Baker, whose stage name was Frederick Federici. Now, apparently he was a talented bass baritone singer. He died in March of 1888 while singing the role of Mephistopheles in Faust. He was also seen by the rest of the cast taking his bows, and then soon after, boom, he died. Now, the theater keeps a seat vacant in the dress circle for Federici, and his appearance in the dress circle during rehearsals for a new show is considered a good omen, considered good luck. Okay, now we haven't really talked much about Bigfoot on here, so let's fix that with some Bigfoot goodness, shall we? Let me see where we're at in time, though. Ah, screw it, who cares? Let's keep going. The first Bigfoot video we're going to talk about. I'm going to talk about a few Bigfoot videos because I don't really ever debunk Bigfoot videos or promote them, actually. But this time, I'm going to. I'm going after some of the best, quote, well-known, have-to-be-real Bigfoot videos. The first one we're going to talk about is the infamous Independence Day Bigfoot video. Here's the problem with that video. It's, it's a beautifully shot video. It's a great video. But here's the problem. There's no known time, no known location, no known date, and we don't even know who the filmmaker is. In my opinion, my opinion only, this is a great fake because of the complete lack of details. Not even a basic, I was walking my dog through the woods, none of that kind of story. It's one of the cleanest videos of Bigfoot and her baby that you'll ever see, but here's my next problem is, they don't look that tall in the video. They look like regular people in gorilla suits. Now, the Bigfoot just kind of walks, turns to the camera, and keeps walking. That's a big red flag. 
There is no lead up. There is nothing. Well, I'll get to that in a second. And also, why does the Bigfoot all of a sudden have a baby? I guess that baby could have been hiding behind the rocks before we see it, but still. There's no sounds. There's no growls. There's no gasps from the cameraman. No words from the cameraman at all. And the fact, like I was saying a second ago, and the fact that the video starts and ends, boom, right then. There is no lead up to why they started filming even. It's just like a video of Bigfoot, not even an, oh shit, there's a baby, nothing. It's boom. Here's this beautifully shot video of, of Bigfoot and Bigfoot walks out of frame. It's almost like, and cue Bigfoot and Bigfoot leaves. All right, everybody back to one. Like it's, it's too well done in my opinion. The complete lack of details leads me to say, hmm. I'm not buying it. Okay, the next Bigfoot video I'm looking for, or I'm looking at for this episode, this one has some details. It's from October 2012 when a group of sibling hikers in Provo Canyon, Utah, see a Bigfoot. They think they're seeing a bear, so they start filming. Then when it stands up, boom, they just start running away. Here's my problem with this one. Bullshit. This is just bad acting 101. Here's... Oh, Bigfoot, there's, I think, oh, actually, they don't even say Bigfoot, they're like, oh, there's, there's right there, looking at, oh, it's just, oh, my God, and, you know, it's like that bullshit. My other problem with this is that a year after they released this footage, they tried to start a Kickstarter to fund their Bigfoot research. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you guys were just regular sibling hikers in Provo, Utah. I didn't think you guys were a Bigfoot research team. Bullshit. Look, I think that Bigfoot can be in Utah. There's been really, real compelling video of Bigfoot coming out of Utah. But this video doesn't convince me of anything. Yet, it is one of the most top 10 Bigfoot videos. You can't believe it. It's proof of Bigfoot all the time. Up next is a video from 1994 when U.S. Forest Patrolman Paul Freeman claimed he saw a family of Bigfoots in the Washington's Blue Mountains. This is a great video. It really is. If all I did was watch this video, and there's a stabilized version of it that I, I'm going to put on the Facebook page. All these are going to be up on the Facebook page, but there's a stabilized version of this video that I'm going to put up. It's fantastic. If all I did was watch that and didn't do any research at all, I would have been like, holy fuck, that's a Bigfoot. This guy, Paul Freeman... He filmed a Bigfoot. Fantastic. But here's my problem. My problem isn't with the video at all. It's with the cameraman. Paul Freeman is a known Bigfoot hoaxer. Not once, not twice, multiple times. June 10th, 1982, Paul Freeman says he sees an eight-foot-tall Bigfoot. But he loses his job because he hoaxed the evidence. 1982 as well. This guy Grover Krantz, Grover Krantz shows Paul Freeman a copy of the hand cast that Ivan Marks claimed is from a Bigfoot hand. Later that year, guess what Paul finds? If you said knuckle prints, well, you'd be right. He finds prints with dermal ridges that local Forest Service officials feel are complete hoaxes. Also, Freeman later produces films which are universally viewed as fakes. That's not me saying it. That is a whole lot of websites saying it. Then, later than that, 
Freeman later produced more than one set of Sasquatch hairs that didn't turn out to be a deer or a known animal like a bear. I would have been fine with that. I would have been like, well, he's out there looking for Bigfoot. He sees hairs. He thinks they're Bigfoot hairs. Big deal. No, no, no. These hairs turn out to be artificial fibers. That's right. Fake animal fur. So, can I say that this 100%, can I say 100% this video is faked? Nope. But due to Freeman's track record alone, it does not lend me to believe that this video is real ever. Which is a shame because like I said, it's a great video. If I would have just put it up there and said, you know, don't do any research, just watch the video. You all would be like, holy shit, that's a Bigfoot. Alrighty, next up is the Josh Highcliffe Bigfoot or Skunk Ape video. This is another great video. I get why it's on these lists. It's a video of them in the swamp. There's a Bigfoot. He's ripping pieces of wood apart. You can hear the wood cracking. I mean, it is a good video. We know where this was filmed and when. That's 2013 near the town of Tunica, Mississippi. And the filmmaker, Josh, doesn't have a history of hoaxing. As far as I can tell, this is one and done. Is this a Bigfoot video? Which is brilliant. He says, There was this huge black thing crouched by a dead cypress about 50 yards away. I thought it was a hog, but saw these big shoulders and a head upright with hands. It looked like it was digging out the stump. When, I, when it stood up, I could not control myself and ran. That stump was huge, and I guess that sucker was seven feet tall. Now, supposedly, he posted this video to say, hey, did I just see what I think I saw? And if this was one of you fuckers trying to do a hoax or a prank, can you let me know? Because this is where I go a lot, and I don't want to go there if this thing is there. It seems legit. It seems impressively real to me. Can I 100% say it's real? Not at all. Okay, last but not least is a blink and you'll miss it Bigfoot video. And I mean that literally. If you blink, that video is over. And you're like, wait, what? Was there a Bigfoot? What the hell? So they have it looped like 15 times and they slow it down, ultra slow and all that bullshit. It's a video taken in the Utah Hills near Provo Canyon in 2012 of a Bigfoot throwing rocks. And now it is too quick to think much of it. Honestly, I don't know what to think. But that quickness kind of makes it great. It could be a real kind of video where there's this video of a Bigfoot, this ginormous thing just chucking rocks. You're not going to hang around. You're not going to stop and get it in frame and, you know, turn it landscape mode and any of that bullshit. No, you're going to be like, oh, wow, look at this. Holy shit. And get the fuck out. It could be real. That's all I'm saying. It could be real. Now, if it turns out that that video, because I couldn't find out who made the video. If it turns out that that video was done by Paul Freeman, guess what? It's bullshit. Calling it now. Alrighty. What's a good paranormal episode without some debunks? Well, here is a known fraud. Her name was spiritualist and medium Helen Duncan. She was born in 1897, and even, even as a child, she said she could see spirits. Then, when she got older, she started doing seances to make some money for her and her family. Now, she said she was aided by her spirit guide, Albert Stewart, a ghost, or Peggy, a ghost little girl who allegedly danced, sang, and swung from curtain rails. She said, 
this is Helen. She said she could produce the spirits of the dead from her own mouth and nose in the form of ectoplasm. Now, if all of this sounds familiar, I just did an episode about known frauds. And when they tried to do bullshit like ectoplasm, it turned out to be bullshit. But like I said, here is a known fraud. I even said at the beginning of this thing. Okay, so by the 1920s and 1930s, she was traveling all over Europe. But not everyone was convinced of Helen's performances. In fact, in 1928, photographer Harvey Metcalf attended one of Helen's seances and took flash photos of her alleged spirits. His photos revealed the conjure spirits were actually a papier-mâché mask with an old sheet. Spooky. There's a reason they did this shit in the dark. Then... Three years later, Helen's activities were investigated by famed ghost hunter Harry Price at the invitation of the London Spiritualist Alliance. A small sample of ectoplasm was examined and revealed to be regurgitated cheesecloth and paper stuck together with egg whites. Well, that's gross. And a supposed materialized hand was found to be nothing more than a housemaid's rubber glove. To me, and I realize this was like, you know, 100 years ago, to me, sounds like Helen was pretty shitty at her job, but she kept going. People kept paying for her. Then, in 1933, she was arrested for fraud after a member of her audience had lunged at the shape emerging from her side of her skirt and revealed it to be a stockinette undervest. A what? I don't know. Old fancy underclothes. Anyhow, it wasn't an, a shape emerging from her side. It was obviously fake. So, Helen's arrested for fraud and ordered to pay a £10 fine at Edinburgh Sheriff's Court. And if that wasn't enough to stop her, nope. She kept performing. Then in 1941, she really pissed off the wrong people because during a seance in which she allegedly conversed with the deceased sailor from the British battleship HMS Barham, the sailor revealed... They'd be in one, that he had been one of more than 800 men who had lost their lives when the ship was torpedoed by a German U-boat. I'm going to stop right here and say this. I have no idea how she did that part. No idea how she knew this, because she was right. Even though the news hadn't been released yet about the HMS Barham, it had indeed been destroyed on the 25th of November. So, the government, fearing that she was in contact with enemies and that she might leak information from inside the war office, the British government ordered her arrest. Police raided a seance taking place in Portsmouth on January 19, 1944. Helen and three members of her audience were arrested under the Catch-All Vagrancy Act of 1824 and a charge later amended to conspiracy in wartime. Now, this sentence... If convicted, she would have been death by hanging. She would have been killed by death by hanging. But by the time the case was brought to the Old Bailey, the charge had been changed again. This time to contravention of Section 4 of the Witchcraft Act of 1735, which covered fraudulent spiritual activity. Now, ultimately, it took the jury only 25 minutes to find her guilty. Thankfully for her... They changed it to the Witchcraft Act and not for high treason, so she wasn't she wasn't hanged. But April 3rd, 1944, she was sentenced to nine months in prison. Upon hearing her verdict, 
it's reported that she collapsed and then started saying, oh, I have done nothing. I have never done anything. Oh, God, is there a God? And then she, then she started crying and said, it's all lies, as she was led away. So she served six months of her sentence and was released from the Holloway prison on the 22nd of September, 1944. She stopped. She said, like, I'm not going to do any more seances. But guess what? She did. She was arrested again in 1956. And then five weeks later, she died at her home in Edinburgh. Okay, guys. Are you getting sick of listening to me? Because I know I am. I got to edit all this. But I want to end the show. I, there's a little bit more left. Don't worry. But I want to end the show with haunted places that you can rent. That's right. You guys loved it the last time I did it. So let's do it again. The first place is called Captain Grant's. It's in Preston, Connecticut. It's a National Historic Inn. Now they say the bedrooms are impeccably furnished and dessert is served all day long. It has a unique billiard room with an authentic 1907 pool table, full gourmet kitchen, fireplace, outdoor grill, fire pit, four acre lawn. There's five bedrooms. They all have their own private bath. Oh, and it's haunted. That's right. A guest has claimed to have woken up in the middle of the night to find a woman dressed in colonial-era clothing holding hands with two small children next to her bed. Yet another guest described feeling the sensation of having her face caressed by invisible hands. Way too creepy there. Hey, handsy ghost, knock that shit off. Then, there are claims that the TVs turn on and off by themselves and shower curtains being knocked down on its own. Room start at $179 per night. Up next is the Manor Master Chamber in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, they're saying this was voted the most mysterious house in St. Paul. There's a master bedroom. It's spacious yet cozy. Master bath, conveniently attached. Short distance from downtown St. Paul. It's got a fire pit. It's got a courtyard. It's got a picnic area. And it has a ghost. That's right. The ominous-looking home is guarded by a friendly Doberman named Scotch. Oh, wait, I think it's a real dog. Wait, what the hell happens at the Manor Master Chamber in St. Paul, Minnesota, you bastards? I obviously skipped something. Oh, it is a real dog. They have a photo of him. Aw, you get a cool dog with you, too. Okay. Uh-huh. Antique furnishings, curiosity, blah, blah, blahs, every boobly-bloobs, spiral staircase, master bedroom, lush gardens... What? Is this fucking place haunted or what? Aha! Here we are. Yes. Okay, this place is haunted. It is haunted by a little girl in a white dress. A year later, the family... Oh, it's actually been seen a few times. I'm a bit skeptic when it comes to actual ghosts, but there's definitely something... Definitely some of Rosalia's energy there. Apparently, the family that owns it says that this girl named Rosalia died there of typhoid fever in 1908, and she is seen there often. Yay! Okay, so it is haunted, and it's got a cool dog. So I want to stay there for the cool dog factor alone, but uh, but it is haunted. Okay, now we can move on to the next one. Oh, uh, that's $79 per night. Boom, done. Next up, Hobo Hill House in Jefferson City, Missouri. Alrighty, so it's a charming home. It, uh became a haunted attraction for the family who purchased the property in 2017. Heaters and the kitchen sink would switch on themselves and on and off, and their dog refused to go into certain areas of the house. The couple say their eight-year-old daughter started to have really bad nightmares and began sleepwalking. Now, the dad says 
it was as if she was possessed. They say they also spotted a tall man wearing a top hat and that voices would say hi as they entered the house. That seems nice. Say hi back. What the hell? Okay, this house is $275 per night. Okay, let's go over to England. It's the Courthouse Manor in Painswick, England. It says, live like a king in this 13-bedroom estate. The 1,600-square-foot manor sleeps 26 and has 13... Why wow, is it 1,600 square feet? But it's 13 bedrooms. That seems weird. But anyhow, it sleeps 26, has 13 bedrooms. You'll never have to fight over who goes first. Take a dip in the swimming pool, soak your muscle, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here we go. It is haunted by King Charles I, who stayed at the property during the 1643 Siege of Gloucestershire. He still haunts the four acres of land. This one is $2,643 per night, which is way more than the last one. You know, for those keeping score. Up next is the Shamrock House in Sunset, South Carolina. It's a historic log cabin, has a servant's quarters, cottage, and a trout stream. Here's the problem. You have to do it a minimum of three nights, and it's haunted. According to the owners, guests have claimed to have heard weeping sounds from a ghost that the owners have lovingly named Nancy for no particular reason. But they say that Nancy is friendly and that the weeping is most likely, hopefully, just creaking noises coming from an old house. So you get to see Nancy. She may or may not be crying and may or may not be called Nancy. See it for yourself for $398 per night. Up next is the Harlot House. On the second floor above the historic Tonopah Liquor Company Bar in Tonopah, Nevada. Tonopah? Tonopah? Don't know. It sits the Harlot House. In 1920s, it was a brothel. Then, it's, uh, they say that uh, it's no longer brothel, but guests can find themselves surrounded by saucy nude portraits, rooms named after historic sex workers, and you might even see some ghoulish gals during your stay, because that's right, it's haunted by former brothel workers, former sex workers. So look, if you want to see a bunch of sex worker ghosts for only a hundred bucks a night, the Harlot House is my recommendation. Boom. Put that out there. My recommendation for sex worker ghosts, Harlot House for only a hundred bucks a night. Up next, a house in Bisbee, Arizona. It's a regular looking old house, except that it's haunted. They say it is, quote, genuinely haunted and strange bouts of, quote, unexplained mischief are to be expected. This one's only 50 bucks a night. Seems like a good deal. Up next is the Laura Cottage. In historic, in historic Savannah, Georgia. That's right, Savannah, Georgia. The cottage was built in 1799. It's famous for appearing in Robert Redford's The Conspirator and for being haunted. The guest house is said to be haunted by a woman named Laura who lived in the cottage for 50 years. Now, encounters with Laura are said to be friendly, so don't worry. You can book this cottage for $178 per night. And finally, holy crap, Finally, the last paranormal thing I'm going to be talking about on this episode. The Civil War Farmhouse from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It's the David Stewart Farm, which has been around since before the Civil War, was even used as a hospital following the, following the Battle of Gettysburg. While you have access to the entire home, you also have a ghost. Actually, many ghosts. A number of Civil War era ghosts are seen at this house. You can book that house for $105 per night. Alrighty, guys. It's come to that time. 
I've been talking for a long time. And I'll be honest, this episode would have been even longer. I had two interviews scheduled for this episode. One that I've been looking forward to for a while, working on it for a while. Another new one. Both of them fell through. I hope to have them on on a future episode, but I was really hoping to have them on this episode. My goal was to do an hour-long episode, I'm sorry, an hour-long interview with each of these guests, which would have put this episode somewhere in the five-hour mark, which is about four and a half hours way too long for listening to my voice as far as I'm concerned, but here you go. The longest, the newest Paranormal Almanac episode. That's right, episode 100. Want to loop back to what I said a few hours ago. Thank you all so much for listening to this. I cannot thank you enough. I've got a lot of cool episodes coming up. I've got a lot of cool episodes planned. I've got two interviews planned that I hope to do soon. One of them you guys are really going to get a kick out of, but I can't tell you about it yet. I think I might have told the patrons, so if you want to be a patron, you'll find out there. But uh, honestly... Thank you, guys. I hope you listened to this whole thing. I hope you liked this whole episode. A lot of cool stuff in this episode. I worked really hard on this one. I hope it shows. Um, hope you guys had some fun with it. I know I did. I cannot thank you, guys. I cannot thank you, guys. I cannot thank you guys enough. What did you guys think? Did you have a certain part of this episode that you loved the most? Did you have a certain part of this episode where you skipped ahead a few times? If so, that's fine. It's three plus hours long, right? It's got to be over three hours long. Is it four hours long? Now I'm even confused on how long it is. It is. It's four hours long. Jesus, that's way too long. But I hope you guys like this one. There's much more Paranormal Almanac coming at you. There's even more episodes on the Patreon. So feel free to join patreon.com slash Paranormal Almanac. If you want to get even more episodes, that's how you do it. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig. This has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac.